This is Shannon Ray Davis, and you are listening to Omega Man Radio. Welcome to my world, the world of the Omega Man. Join us here for the nightly marathon, broadcasting Monday through Friday. You can find us here on YouTube, and we encourage you to report for duty. Get trained up. World of the Saints is coming. You want to be an overcomer and endure till the end. We will teach you how. We cast out devils. We command healing to the sick in Jesus' name. And we preach the full gospel of Jesus Christ to win souls for Jesus. I want to encourage you right now to subscribe right here on YouTube to this channel. Smash the like button and share a link to our live chat room to everyone you know right there on Facebook. Get them to come on out and tune in and join in the fight against the host of hell. If you'd like to support this work financially, we have a PayPal button on our website. We have GoFundMe, Zelly, even Take Bitcoin. And we thank you in advance for partnering with us. Our website is OmegaManRadio.com. One more thing before we start tonight's show. To the demons tuning in. We're coming for you, demon. No demon is safe. everybody welcome aboard this is a live show Tuesday August 4 2020 and it's a distinct honor to uh, be here today with a very special guest I counted a high honor to have here tonight Roger Reeves Roger welcome to the broadcast my friend well thank you Shannon I'm glad to get on here I hope you have some coffee with you doing good and uh, Roger, this may be unlike any show you've ever done, but we're going to have a good time. I promise you that. And uh, you know, I'd like to open up shows with prayer. Would you do us an honor today and uh, open us up in prayer, Roger? Certainly, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, this wonderful. One. We thank you for our lives, Lord. We thank you for all the people that are listening to us on this uh, on this show, Lord. And we ask your blessings on us today, Lord, as and. May our words go out and be pleasing to thee. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I say amen to that. Again, welcome everybody. Roger Reeves in the house. And for those that may not have heard the name Roger Reeves, uh, you're going to learn a lot about him tonight. I'm going to read a little intro here from his book called Smuggler, the memoir. You can get up on Amazon. Roger Reeves grew up a poor boy in Georgia. Went from making moonshine to becoming one of the most prolific smugglers of the 20th century. He covered six continents, transporting 20-ton shiploads of hash, tons of cocaine, and completed more than 100 sorties across the U.S. border with plain loads of marijuana. His friends and associates spanned the globe, from the Medellin cartel kingpins like Jorge Ochoa, and Pablo Escobar to Mr. Nice, Howard Marks, 
and the infamous Barry Seals, who was Roger's close friend and employee. Roger escaped from police custody and prisons on five separate occasions, was shot down in both Mexico and Colombia, and tortured almost to death in a Mexican prison. Despite five decades of a real-life Indiana Jones adventure, the sparkle in Roger's eye and smile on his face remains. Nothing is made up here. This story happened, and you may have never heard of him. I want to read one other thing uh, that was said about Roger in a court. Your Honor, Mr. Reeves is not a drug dealer. Mr. Reeves is not a drug importer. Mr. Reeves is a drug industrialist with a fleet of ships and an Air Force of planes at his disposal who has spanned the globe for a decade with his death instruction. Now, I wouldn't agree with that man that uh, in your wake you'll have death and destruction, but I will agree that my friend uh, Roger Reeves uh, is different than most stories you have heard. This man uh, went all in, and we're going to learn about his amazing story tonight. It's amazing that Roger is even alive today because, you know, Roger, um, welcome to the show. Um, as we look back at, you know, history, the 70s, 80s, 90s, the drug wars, most of the people that played a part in that are gone. And we hear stories about them. They make movies about some of the people. And really, in truth, we don't know how to sort from fact or fiction. So when we have an opportunity to meet a man who's been there and done that, and he lived to tell the story, and his story is true, he's going to share with you tonight, what an honor it is. Again, Roger is living history, and we're going to sort out um, many of the events of the drug wars, the cocaine cowboy history that you've seen movies made about. Roger was there. He saw it. He lived it. And he survived it. Roger, welcome to the show tonight. Thank you, Shannon. Glad to be with you. Well, let me preface by saying, Roger, uh, this show is not going to be able to do justice to your story to tell the full tale. There's there's no way we could do that. In fact, um, we'd have to do a, a dozen shows just to scratch the tip of the iceberg because I know you have done so much and the journey you've been on has been massive and a long time in the making. We're going to try to touch on some of the highlights tonight and hopefully uh, many of you are going to do what I did. You're going to go out and get this book at the end of this show and read it and learn more and we're even hoping that a movie is made on Roger's life because it would be epic. Uh, Where do we go? Maybe back to the beginning. Um, Roger, a central theme in your life has been your love of flying. How did you get into flying? How did that get started? Oh, I was just a, a young man. Uh, went up to the Douglas, Georgia airport, and there was an old crop duster out there, and he wanted to give me a ride. I got in a little airplane. Down the side of it, it had death trap wrote on it. So he should have <laughs> told me something. He took off the end of the runway and uh, ran between two pine trees. And I knew it was going to take the wings off if he didn't turn it up, but I didn't figure he was going to kill himself. So he just turned it up like a knife and went through still laughing. And I thought, well, he didn't scare me too bad. So anyhow, we landed, and I thought, now that was fun. That 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 excited me. So I started taking flying lessons, and I didn't fly but just a little while. And uh, 
I guess I flew about eight hours, and I went about one third of a little old Cessna one one fifty two, and then I flew that thing all over. I flew it all the way to almost the northern part of Alaska, and came on back. And what what an experience! And uh, got my license, and, and just then I just I just took to it. That is amazing. Uh, what type of ratings did you hold as a pilot? I just I kept my private pilots and the, and the instrument, and uh, I never did go on. I, I figured if I got too many ratings, when I went to court with what I was doing, I'd say, Judge, I can't, I can't fly those airplanes. <laughs> I'm not qualified. But I bought everything up for a DC-7, a four-engine plane that would uh, carry 30 tons for 6,000 miles. That is amazing. So I, I got yeah, some big airplanes. You sure did. Those are those huge. I'm looking at some of the pictures in the book, like these uh, DC-3s. Those are amazing. The workhorse of the sky, as they called it. Um, they were wonderful airplanes. You know, I just have to brag a minute. Uh, folks, um, I'm so excited to be here with Roger. And um, I'm also excited about the fact we got something in common. We're both Georgia boys. Uh, when you said Douglas, Georgia, that's where some of my kinfolk came up from. <laughs> what a small world. Um, Absolutely. By the way, as we're getting into the story tonight, I just want to say welcome back, my friend. How does it feel to be a free man? I know you've been gone a long time. You paid a heavy price. And uh, I know it's got to feel good to be back home. Are you Are you happy to be free? Well, I'll just tell you, I, uh, I was in for 33 years total. And this last time I was in for 19 years. I had a life sentence down in Australia. And when I um, was deported from that country after I was paroled, after 18 years, I was I landed in Los Angeles and thought I might go free, but I was arrested and put in the shoe. I, because of my escapes, they uh, they put me in solitary confinement for another nine months, and uh, I couldn't get out of it. So finally, I got paroled. Now I'm on parole till I'm 100 years old. I get off parole 2043, and. Uh, so, but anyway, I, I got out of that prison and I come home, and uh, my wife was waiting on me. She waited on me all those years. I think she's the uh, she's the heroine of the this family. She raised the children while I was in prison. I talked to her every day for twenty minutes all those years, and uh, so I came home and uh, she has a little condominium here in Santa Barbara, California, and I walked in, and when I went in. There was the tables and chairs that I'd had 35 years ago when I left, and there was a placemat still on there in the place, and the candles are still in the candlestick, and the furniture was all the same. And I just couldn't quit crying. I cried for about three days. I just, everything I'd look at, I'd cry. So after about the third day, I said, Roger, man up. you got to quit this crying. And it still, the tears still come sometimes when I look at things, and I just think of all the years that I've missed. Not just, it's just something that comes from down in the heart you, you can't stop the tears just from just from the gratitude of being free Roger I tell you nice what a, big, oh, I know yeah. I know it well you got to be one of the most happiest men in the world to be back to be with family that loves you and um, I tell you you're an extraordinary man not only did you survive uh, some hair raising adventures and working with different people uh, notorious like the the infamous Pablo Escobar. We'll talk about him later. But you survived the, the punishment that a prison can put on a person. 
and um, you're an amazing man. In fact, um, I was watching some video earlier today uh, of a clip where you did a, uh, I believe it was a National Geographic interview a few years ago, and um, it showed you running. Are you still running? Yeah, I still run. <laughs> I, I still run. I, I dropped there this morning. I already I ran a couple of miles this morning. I usually run up up until just recently. I ran five miles uh, twice a week and three miles uh, three times a week. No and I do push-ups. I do a set, and I'm 77 years old, so I'm real proud of that. I do good military push-ups, 100 of them at the time, and uh, that that uh, that's something to be proud of at my age. Later, I want to talk about what it was like on the inside for so long and how you survived it. Many people don't. But, again, that's testament to the fact that uh, you're a fighter, you're a survivor, and God's not done with you, my friend. We're so excited to have Roger Reeves on it. We're just getting started. We're going to talk about him and his life in his book called Smuggler, a memoir. And, um, Roger, um, with your book, you open up with um, a major event. It's called Crashed in Columbia. Why don't we jump into your story right there? Tell us what happened in Columbia. Well, What's that about? My favorite. That's one of my favorites. Well, I, I don't know how long you want me to talk, but I, that's a good story, and I'll tell it to you if you like. Just interrupt me anytime you want to. All right, when I was a boy, I was raised in a church there in Georgia, and I accepted the Lord as, as a young age, and I love to read. I've always read. I read a book called Jungle Pilot. It's about Nate Saint. And uh, he wanted to go, couldn't go to the war because of a knee injury, but he started mission, Missionary Aviation Fellowship, where he would fly a little Piper Cub and drop a bucket to the missionaries right at their feet, just like a cowboy does a lariat. And they would, they would put their note in what they needed, if they needed some medicine or their mail. And that kept them from walking sometimes three weeks to get to, get to a road or get to where they could get their mail. So he started that Missionary Aviation Fellowship, and then they would fly the uh, sick people in and out. And uh, the missionaries cut little tiny strips in the jungle all over the world, in Borneo and South America. And I thought, boy, that's what I want to do with my life. And he was killed. And him and a guy, Jim Elliott, and three others there in Ecuador, and uh, back in 1957, that just filled the papers. And it, it, it broke the heart of many people. And uh, Elliot's wife, Elizabeth Elliot, went back in and evangelized the people that killed him. And her book is called Through Gates of Splendor. And I thought, oh, boy, I'm not uh, I'm not cut out to be a preacher or a missionary, but I, I bet you I'd love to fly those sick people and those missionaries in and out of the jungle. Well, things didn't quite work out like I'd expected, and as it often does. And I went out to California, I believe, in 1968 and went to see them about going to, going to work with them. And they wanted me to go to a mechanic school for three years. They said, well, you got to be able to fix your airplane if it breaks down in the jungle. I saw that they were right, but that time I, I was married and had a little girl, and it just it wasn't possible. <clears throat> so things locked wrong, and I got on the fire department out in uh, Los Angeles there in uh, Redondo Beach, and I started flying marijuana. And I'll cut out a lot of that it's, planes got bigger and bigger and bigger and uh finally i was uh going to pick up a load and i was over the amazon and i was intercepted by colombian jets and they tried to get me to go to a place called via vincentia and they was on each wing and they uh they shot the tail up they shot the wing up and i could look right across at the young pilot's face and i didn't think he was going to kill me 
but my mouth was quite dry. So uh, I went into a thunderstorm, and the thunderstorms hang near mountains, and I was afraid to hit the mountain. I couldn't see, and that that plane, every time I'd come out, he'd be boom, boom, boom with the 20 cannons right under me and the tracers going all around the windshield. Now I'd go back into the thunderstorm, and it's a boom, boom, boom of the of the of the lightning around me, and I got up above about twenty, twenty-two thousand feet that old DC three, and it iced up. So I just put it over into a spin, and went down to the ground. Took my chance, and I came out under the uh, underneath the clouds. It was just pretty and puffy. I got away from from the jet and the thunderstorm, but my plane was pretty well shot up. And I thought, well, I need to need to where I needed to go would just get there right before dark because it was in the gorilla area and they didn't want you there in the daytime. So I needed a place to set it down. So I found a place on the Guaviera river up on a bluff. Looked like it was a mile or two long with grass. And I made several passes with that old big DC three and them tires are bigger than a truck tire. And, uh, I'd roll it along. I must've landed seven or eight times. And, uh, it looked like a runway there with the propellers cutting the grass and the wheel tracks. So I said, all right, this time we stop it. The fellow in there was a co-pilot named Al, and we went slowing down. I said, get your feet off the brakes, Al. He said, I don't have them on there. And I knew the tires had went through the crust of that clay and it was bogging down. And I put the power to it, but it, it couldn't pull out. And so it started doing a handstand, and the, the instrument panel just crushed in on us, and we fell in between the seats. And that plane stopped 90 degrees. I mean, I believe if you were to put a level on it or plumb line, it was exactly 90 degrees standing up and down. That tail was out on those 60, 70 feet up in the air, and the fuel was just pouring out on them hot engines. So all I had to do was uh, open the hatch in the emergency hatch and just step out on the ground with my little suitcase. Well, there was four of us in the plane, and three of them decided they'd go down the road. I said, fellas. I'll stay in here a year and eat snakes before I'm going down the road after what just happened with us. So they went on down the road, and you know what happened to them. They stayed in the the Bogota Hilton for three or four years, violating the airspace and what that. But I went on, and I went through the jungle for 11 days. I got eat up with mosquitoes. I rode in dugouts. I finally got on the back of an AN tractor, a little forward tractor, pulling a feed grinder and went some ways. And I kept asking, where was airplanes? I wanted to get an airplane and get out of there. People kept saying, Loma Linda, Loma Linda, the Indians and the native people, Loma Linda has airplanes. So after a long, long trek of 11 days, I got to Loma Linda, and it looked like Hawaii in World War II. Like those, uh, had, a, had a long runway and an antenna going up to the sky, five or six airplanes, little little Cessnas there. Lovely lady there. Hello, who are you? And I told her who I was and what are you doing? Well, I'm touring the Amazon. Oh, we don't get many visitors. And uh, could I stay here? Sure, it's $10 a day, room and board if you have it. If not, it's free. What is this place? You don't know. This is Loma Linda, headquarters for Missionary Aviation Fellowship for the Amazon. Wow. That was was, uh, part of that story. That was uh, where I was shot down over Columbia. Talk about a divine appointment. Um, God was planting some seeds in your life real early. Now, Roger, to kind of um, give a framework for our story tonight, what kind of time period 
are we talking about here? When did you uh, begin to fly and get involved in making some of these uh, smugglers' runs? What time frame are we talking? Late 60s, uh, early 70s? Er, early 70s through 1982 when I was arrested. So I had about 10 years of it. This is amazing. So you started out uh, getting your pilot's license, uh, getting experience flying. You're working with the fire department out there in California. And um, and then an opportunity uh, to make some, some money um, flying and making some deliveries. In the beginning, uh, were you immediately flying and doing um, overseas flights, or were you doing any flying in the States, too, at that time? Okay, I had a little airplane. I was working on the fire department, and uh, so I was asked uh, by a fellow who smoked a little pot if I'd like to fly down to Mexico and get some marijuana. I didn't even know what it was. I'd heard about it, but that was that was just in the early 70s. I just, it was, was it popular? And I said, I don't know anything about it. He said, well, they'd uh, pay you $10,000, somebody. I got somebody if you'll take your airplane down there. Wow. $10,000 was about two years' take-home pay at that time. That's a lot of money. <laughs> so I said, well, go take a look at that. So I went down to Mexico with that little airplane and flew that little load of hay back. It wasn't nothing but just a few bales of that suitcase, two or three suitcases size of marijuana. Flew that back and gave it to them. And they came and gave me $10,000 in a sack. I brought it home. We didn't need the money. I mean, anybody, two years' pay is a pretty good little check. And I dumped it on the bed just to look at it. My wife put her hand over her mouth and like, oh my goodness, what in the world? And so I said, that's something. That is something. That's just unbelievable. They were nothing stopping me, but they wasn't even a barbed wire fence between the United States and Mexico back then. And uh, I said, let's go again. So I went a, a couple of weeks later. I had a few days off, and I went down there again. And man, it was just as pretty as you could please. I was just in in. Uh, intrigued by Mexico. I went into the old missions and I looked at the stations of the cross and all that. I was just impressed and the women washing their clothes and iron uh, steel, I mean, excuse me, stone pots in the the street where the water was running down there and I just, it was just intriguing. So I did that and I had $10,000 more. So I went to talk to a lawyer. I said, Mr. Lawyer, what would happen to me if I get caught flying some marijuana across the border? He says, have you ever been arrested? I said, I've never even had a speeding ticket in my life, mister. He said, you work on the fire department? I said, yeah, I got I'm a fireman there in Los Angeles. And he said, well, you'd get probation 90, 99% of the time. But just in case you the worst happened, you would, uh, you'd, you'd get a year and you'd probably do four months breaking leaves on some military base. And I thought, well, that's not a very bad bet. So I took the money that I had, and I bought a bigger airplane. I bought a Cessna 207. Well, it hauled 1,100 pounds, 500 kilos. And so I got somebody that would pay me, and they paid me $40,000, and I could go every day I wanted to. Well, I was wanting to save up $300,000 to go back to the farm in Georgia and, and farm. And when I, I got that $300,000 so quick, it made my head spin. And I told my wife, let's go back. She said, you don't remember those flies and bugs like I did. We had 36,000 in the tobacco field, a lot of hard work and sweat. And she liked California. And it wasn't that she wouldn't go, but it was that she definitely wasn't for it. So anyway, my, my father had died when all of us was young and had a baby sister just six weeks old when he died. So I had her and my mother come out. 
and I took them to Disneyland in my new Cadillac. <laughs> I, did, I wasn't very smart about the DEA and that sort of stuff. I bought me a $9,000 brand new Cadillac in 1973. So at Disneyland, my mother said, what are you doing, boy? I said, I'm hauling pot, Mom. She said, how much, what, how much you make? I said, I'm making $40,000 any day I want to go. She says, well, they do if they catch you. And I told her about what the lawyer said. The worst I do is about four months raking leaves. I said, what do you think, Ma? She said, you need a co-pilot, son? <laughs> Listen. So that's the way it was back in 1973. They had a referendum, and I believe it, 49% of the people in California wanted to legalize it back then. Yes. And I was a hero. I mean, everybody, just everywhere I went, I don't smoke pot. I don't do any kind of drugs. But uh, that kind of money was just unheard of. So that's how I got started with it. Well, I've never heard of anybody smoking pot and killing somebody. So it's not like, uh, you know, it caused people to go crazy. <laughs> um, and look at where yeah. we are, you know, 2020. Um, now it's legal in most states. So how things change. If you're just joining us, we're live with Roger Reeves. And, um, Roger, when you begin to fly, and you're flying, making some runs down there to Mexico, um, I want to get in the mind of a pilot doing this. Where do you go to pick up and drop off? Will you land at an airport? Can these aircraft land out in the bush? Will it be on a dirt road? Where might your trip uh, start and end, going into Mexico, for example? Well, I just have to take all right. First off, and what hundreds and hundreds of pilots have made the mistake, they just go down and something happens and they get caught. First thing you have to do is stop at the border on the Mexican side and clear customs. And they'll give you a, a permit to fly in Mexico for six months. And you pay three or four dollars and you get a radio license. And you get all this stamped. And it takes an hour or something back then. But now then you got a permit in your pocket to be in Mexico. So then I would fly down to a place called Mulahay, the fish camp, about halfway down Baja. And I would land there and refuel. And uh, and then further on, I started going down to Cabo San Lucas when I got bigger planes. And then I would spend the night at the hotel Cabo San Lucas, a real nice hotel, and uh, take off at 4 o'clock in the morning and fly over and land on a, on a road or, uh, or a strip, whatever they had for me. And then I would take it back and... Uh, pick up the load and bring it back over into the middle of Baja where there was a goat ranch where they make goat cheese and wow. I'd land there and unload the load and go back into Mulahay and have my plane washed and have a good lunch and take a nap and late in the afternoon I would fly back over to the goat ranch and load that ton of marijuana up and come back across the border just at dark so that was just about the way I did it every time for several years Now with these aircraft um, did they have to have a a pretty good strip, or could you just land it on a grass field in a, in a farmer's ranch or a dirt road? Um, how are these aircraft set up in terms of landing in some of these trains? Well, I had a lot of different. I had 25 different airplanes in my life. Uh, the first off was like uh, the Cessna 207. It had big tires, and it would uh, it would land on, in, on sand beds. And there was a place called Pichilingi, just wow. north of Mazatlan, 50 miles. There was a little stream they called it a river, but it was not knee deep. And I would land on the uh, like a, a bend of that river, and it was a 900-foot standy runway. And I'd land right into the sunset, just at sunset, and it almost blind me. And uh, that Cessna would 
would take off, but it wouldn't take off with a load. But my wife would pack up things for the children. They liked apples, and she'd got little toys and fill the place with the boxes up with candy, and we'd fill the plane up to take back to those impoverished children in that little village. Well, every time I'd land, there'd be more children. <laughs> the word Santa Claus is coming was getting around. But in the morning, just at daylight, I'd go down and brush my teeth in that river. I'd spend the night some in some like uh, barn and a hammock, and my waiter, 10, 15 men would walk down with me. Uh, this young fellow, Pedro, would get in the plane with me. He was about 20 years old, but very light. And he would direct me to a highway, sometimes 20, 30, 40 miles away, where the men would have the road blocked off, and they'd have a truck parked one way and across it, and another one the other way, and I'd land in between them. And they'd load that 500 kilos of marijuana in that airplane. And I'd shake hands with them, and I'd take off over Sometimes maybe 20, 30 cars wait, waiting on the freeway there, just stopped. Nobody said a word. One time I remember seeing a highway patrolman car sitting in the, sitting in the line of cars. He didn't see anything either. Anyhow, I'd fly on back home. And, uh, on the 13th trip, I tell about, I had the little alarm going off in my stomach like, don't do it, don't do it. So the, the next morning when we took, went down in Pedro and I got into plane, uh, I heard a gunshot. And I thought a tire blew out, and he was saying, Policia, Policia. And I shot the, put the uh, accelerator to the uh, throttle to the firewall, and we took off. We had about four or 500 feet right straight up in front of us. Wow. And right at the end of it, I back just as hard as I could and jerked on the flaps, and it was standing up on its nose, and then we were just riddled with machine gun, just riddled. That plane was absolutely looked like something Bonnie and Clyde. Went back later on and counted 80 bullet holes in it. Good. And I was shot three times. He was shot. His foot was nearly shot off. And I pulled the power, and I, I went into some kind of shock. Things turned just yellow. And we hit the ground. Uh, uh, it looked like uh, rocks up the river, and they looked like turtle backs. I mean, just turning daylight. And we hit those, and the wings came off. And the next one, the, the engine came off and went up under the plane. I must have been knocked out because... He was shaking me, come come on, Roger, come on. And we jumped out, and uh, there was four Federalists coming down, still shooting at us in there. Plane, the bullet or two hit the plane, and I carried a 9-millimeter pistol up on, but I had it taped on top of a radio up under the dash. Well, that thing was peeled off, and it was just laying out there like it was waiting for me. So I popped off a few caps down that way, and that got rid of the Federalists. They, they took off into rocks, and we took off up. Uh, I wanted to go down the mountain. He said, no, no, no got to go up the mountain and I looked and his foot had been shot on the right hand side and it came out the left side side right with the ankle bone with an AK-47 and tore through it good grief and so I stopped my white t-shirt up and put it in there to stop the blood somewhat and we went on up the mountain and we there was an old gray donkey was way back big old donkey with long hair white hair and he come up and patted her and rubbed her good morning Charlotte good morning and we hopped on that old donkey and rode away so uh, that was quite a story how we got out of that story. I'm just getting I like so. That's amazing. Um, what's it like flying into Mexico in the 70s? What kind of resistance would you have in terms of what's the political climate? Uh, is it um, as long as you pay a bribe, you can do business down there where the federale is always on your trail? Um, what's, what's it like flying in the 70s into Mexico doing these kind of runs? You mentioned there y'all were attacked by the federales. Was is that a, a threat 
that was always out there on the periphery. You had to be looking out for uh, troops. They, the the Federales are, are a terrible, terrible bunch of people. Worst, I guess you just they couldn't have been any worse than Saddam Hussein's people. They are probably the same type. Like they just kill you, no doubt about it. And uh, they were there just to rob you. They they didn't care anything about law and order. They were just there to rob you. They got so bad until uh, Mexican government disbanded them. I forget some back. I, I don't remember. Uh, before 1980, I believe they they would about take over the government, and uh, they would they would just grab you and torture you until you give up your money or confessed. So and, you had this. Uh, you had money you could pay off, but you didn't know who to pay. It was the different ones everywhere. You pay off this one, then another one. You're about to come in and get you. So it was dangerous. Absolutely. Now you have to um, contend with the federales, and I don't think they've gotten much better. <laughs> in fact, I heard recently that. Um, I think even the last uh, president of Mexico had a guy that was working for him in his cabinet with deep connections with the cartel. And um, I lived in Tijuana years ago, back around 2000, and I was told back then most of the federales were on the take. Many of them worked with the cartel, and even some of them would pay up to $10,000 a month just to have a territory, and then, you know, they were involved in everything there, so I don't think anything's really improved in Mexico. It's probably worse than ever. Um, what's it like at that time flying into Mexico in terms of um, the American side? Were there people always looking for flights, uh, like the Coast Guard, you know, um, uh, Customs and Border Patrol? Were they looking for you guys on radar? Did you have to... Um, uh, be sure of where you were flying. What What are you looking at um, as a threat from the American side at that time, doing these runs to Mexico? Well, when I first started, uh, I, I don't think there was anything. Back nineteen seventy two, seventy three, there was it was open. I, I still flew just as low as I could. I'd fly at night. I'd try to fly with a little bit of a moon, up to a half moon, so I could see the hills, but uh, they couldn't see me. And I think my I think my plane's about the color of the sand of the desert out there. Wow. And I would, I'd, like this, and I would drop down, and uh, I'd see a light, say, 20 miles away on a hill or in a house or a farm place, and I would drop down till the light went out. And then just as soon as it got out, I'd jerk it up just a few feet till I could see that light. So I knew there was nothing between me and that light. Then I'd get another light, and I'd, that's how I came across. And sometimes I'd fly right up the uh, Colorado River. And one time I come with, with my uh, one engine out and just barely skimming the water to stay to stay a, a, a airborne. But uh, now that and then they started Operation Star Trek, where they put trucks on every little hill across the border from Texas to California, and you couldn't cross it. A lot of people were getting caught. So I changed my route. I had pretty long range airplanes, and I was flying. Uh, uh, beach 18s I had some nice beach 18s some of the later model ones and uh, I would go and refuel there in the center part of Mexico, uh, Baja about 400 miles south 400 500 miles south of Tijuana and then when I departed I would go out to um, island of Guadalupe Isla Guadalupe it's 200 miles off the coast of Baja into the Pacific and then I would head northwest out of that and I would be about 300 miles out from San Diego where they had the radar 
and I would come on up north uh, to behind the Santa Barbara Islands, and then I would drop down when I got 200 miles or so out, I'd, I'd drop right on down to I would get sometimes spray on my windshield. And I'd come up behind, behind the islands out there, and then I would come up like I took off from one of those islands and then go out there into the desert and unload. And so that's how I did it for many years until I started coming through Louisiana. And then I uh, pioneered that route. And that's the one that Barry Seal got famous on. They have, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds of oil wells out there off the coast of Louisiana. They go way out. And uh, in the evening, just at dark, there'd be a, a multitude of helicopters flying back in with crew. they take a tr- crew, and they just blink in like fireflies as they come back across there. So I'd say, I, at that time, I was flying turbojets, 300 miles an hour. And I'd, when I got over uh, Yucatan, I would uh, got about halfway over the uh, Gulf of Mexico, about 300 miles out, I'd put it down. And, of course, I'd come in at 300 miles an hour. But then when I got into where I could see those oil wells, I'd slow down. And I'd slow down just as slow as I could go, about 120 miles an hour, 100 with those helicopters, and I'd come right in with them. So I did that, I guess, 50 times, too. So that was my my different routes coming into the United States. This is amazing. Uh, In the book that Roger has written called Smuggler, Roger Reeves, a memoir, there's a little, looks like a business card clipped here. I like that it says, you call, I haul, green or white, day or night. Folks, we are... Uh, honored to have Roger Reeves, a man with an adventure that uh, it would take volumes to go through it all. I can only touch on some highlights tonight, but we're so honored to be here with Roger. And I'm going to ask him questions, and they may not be in chronological order of events, but um, great conversation points. So we're talking about Mexico right now, and clearly, as a smuggler, carrying these loads on your aircraft, um, the rewards are great, but the risks are great, too. Um, you could be shot down by federales, as was the case. You could be intercepted uh, at the border. Um, and many other threats we'll talk about later. But while we're on the subject of Mexico, what happens after this? Um, you are shot down. The uh, guy you're flying with, his foot is almost shot off. He probably retired at that point. Um, but that didn't stop you. Did you uh, get another aircraft and and continue the runs? Oh yes, I I, I got another aircraft right away. I bought it's when I bought a twin beach. That was a lovely. Oh, I bought it from the from the Beach Boys. The Beach <laughs> so Boys. That was a wow. The Beach Boys. Yeah, they owned the plane before I did. That was That's something. And that. Tell me about uh, um, Mazatlan, Mexico, and the the torture in prison. I heard this as part of your testimony. Um, that's always a potential risk. You might get arrested by these uh, foreign governments and thrown in the gulag there. In this case, you spent some time in the Mexican prison. What was that like, Roger? I believe that's just as close to hell as you can get on Earth without being, being dead. That was awful, just absolutely awful. I've been in 26 prisons in my life. And that was by far the worst place I've ever been in. It was just almost beyond description, filthy and and, and vulgar, and just just terrible. Uh, they uh, put me uh, in a little cell. I guess it was hardly five foot square, 
real high with a ceiling light, and it must have been over 100 degrees in there at that time, July, uh, June, July, I believe 1974. And I was stripped naked and just beaten until I was just yellow and blue. And all I had to do was just sign the papers and say that I had two airplanes and a yacht that was hauling pot. And then I would be, I'd go, I'd have got six years and been since six years in a Mexican prison, but I decided I didn't want to do that. So I just took it. So they got so bad. I mean, they, uh, one of the worst was they, they, uh, chained me up and spread me apart and put some butter on my rear end and put ground up real hot chili pepper up oh, my God. rectum. God have mercy. Almost burned. I just wow. burned, burned the daylights out of me. I mean, it set me on fire. You just cry and beg them to take it out. Wow. That was, that was real. Pardon? Bro- Brother, that's um, that's horrific. And yeah, that they, is they've been known to do that. I'm not the only one that got that treatment. Another one, they'd hold your head under a seltzer water. And they'd hold you down with three of them. And after one whiff of that, three of them couldn't hold you down. So you kind of learned right before you had to just come up, take a breath, to struggle just like that. But that that was awful. Your eyes would burn for for two days after after that treatment. And then uh, this is this is one of the most interesting things. It, it wasn't so bad, but it was just awful to think about and look at. They took a, a man, a black man, and he was dead, and he was frozen, and he was wrapped up in newspaper strips about an inch wide, just wrapped all around him from his head right down to his toes. And they come in with an ice hook and hook hook hooked him up on a on a, a hook on the side of the wall. And you next, you next, and I won't say the ugly words that went with it, but uh, you're next. Wow. So uh, he started in that heat. He started pretty quick unthawing, and pretty soon it looked like he was crying. You could see his eyes and tears, the water just running down his face like he was crying. Mouth kind of fell open and mouth and then. The formaldehyde was running out of him and puddling on the ground. And the side of him opened up. I could see his liver good and clear, but I butchered hogs and cows and deer. It didn't bother me that much. So that the smell of the formaldehyde was just awful in that little airless place. And I lay down on that filthy floor and put my lips puckered up under the door. They might have been, might have been a half inch, maybe a little less, but I could get some fresh air there. And I went to sleep with my face on the floor like that with that. <laughs> with that man unthawing and the formaldehyde puddling. The formaldehyde must have done, I wasn't certain it did something to my brain. And I know where Walt Disney gets all these pink flying pigs from because they were <laughs> certainly in my dream. God have mercy. And I woke up. I woke up to that black and white nightmare and it took me, I believe, a full minute to find out which one was a, was a dream and which, which one was a nightmare and which one was real. I'd be like, it's that's time the, to vamanos. Get out of here. <laughs> wow. That was my experience of the Mexican prison. Folks, and I don't tell many more stories. You don't want to end up in a Mexican prison. Uh, when I lived in Tijuana, no. I used to live off of Revolution Avenue up in Colonia Hidalgo. Lived there for a year, of all places. And I would walk to catch a bus, and I'd go right under the Tijuana jail, and those guys being looking out there through the bars. I said, God have mercy. I don't want to end up there. Absolutely. You don't want to be in a Mexican jail, folks. You you just heard a taste of what it was like, torture. You got out of there by the grace of God. Um, are you like, I don't want to go back to Mexico. It's time to find some other place to fly to, or did you continue to work down there for a while? I continued to work. The, uh, 
I was making too good of money. I just, just, just changed positions. Just changed, changed areas. They, they just, I was in a pool and, uh, a pilot that was supposed to be bringing me a plane down and he landed at the wrong airport and, and he had my name in his pocket and that's, that's all they had on me. It's just, just nothing. So, uh, I, I continued to work there for a while till another tragedy happened, but, uh, and then I left Mexico for good. Went to went to Pakistan, Thailand, and Colombia. Wow! I tell you, you have flown to some far flung places on the globe. Tell me about uh, Las Mochis and the engine on fire. Yeah, I was coming there. I had a twin, nice twin beach, and I was just coming along there one morning after I just I had about uh, twenty four hundred pounds on there, good pot, and. Uh, 11,000 feet and I just felt a little bump in my left foot and I looked and oil was streaming out of the, the left engine and I pulled the power back on that engine and good gracious and it, then it just erupted into a furious blaze I mean just burned the whole side of the airplane burned the paint down off of that wing and uh, I, I know that that was the scariest I've ever been in my life so I, I opened the cowl flaps and put that thing in a as close to a straight down dive as I could get. There was two miles below me was all the water I needed. Uh, the land was right close to it. I thought, if I can just get there, I'll live. And uh, so I guess that thing went up to about 400 miles an hour. It was way past the do not exceed speed. And I thought the tail might come off, so I had to just slow it down a little bit. And that thing was blazing. That fire went out, I guess, uh, somewhere down there. I forgot just how high it was. But then it was too stiff. I couldn't pull. I couldn't pull out of it. I was afraid I'd tear the wings off if I pulled back on the yoke. So that was a mess. I finally, I only got leveled out at fifteen hundred feet, and went on above Guaymas, where they uh, made a big, big movie there. And there was a strip. I thought maybe I should land there, but then I said, "All right, I'll just land. Every, every foot I go towards the United States is one less I'll have to hitchhike or walk with this thing." So I kept going, and I put the right engine full, full bore. But it was still dropping like 100 feet a minute, so it wasn't going to take too long to get down there. So just above Guaymas, I got down, and I got right close to the to the shoreline, and I was going to was going to ditch. And I, when I got about three or four feet from the water, uh, it started flying. It's an air cushion. It, you see airplanes when they come into land, they float a little while. Yes, sir. So one one wing one wing length from the ground is you have a, I forget what it's called, but it's a, it's a cushion of air you ride on. Well, that thing started flying, and it's shaking the ground, the yoke shaking, it was in, in bells and whistles going off like crazy, it's in a stall, and the, the right wing kept nearly touching the water, and I got both feet on the rudder pedal, and I transferred some fuel, and that thing flew all the way, got onto the Colorado River up north, another 400, 500 miles. By that time, it burned off enough fuel and uh, so I followed that Colorado River, and it does wind around. And I'm sure there's power lines go across it, so I was staying right down on the water. And uh, I come across the border, and it got to flying, and I got to Interstate 8, at Highway 8 or Interstate 8, just on the American side. And I said, all right, I'll go along that, and it would fly just enough to get down that highway. And I remember a policeman was uh, getting a ticket. I must have blew his hat off. <laughs> and then... It was a, a bang, like wham. It was before I could even see it. There was a dark bridge going across, and I must have missed it by an inch. 
it almost bent that airplane, the concussion of the air with the airplane. I got up in the air at that time. Then I put it in, uh, over the Salton Sea, and I went down what is 170 feet below sea level, went up to the Salton Sea, and uh, went over, went around uh, Palm Springs and headed uh, east on Interstate 10 with that one engine and the other one out. And I didn't realize it, but the Interstate 10 starts rising pretty sharp out of Palm Springs going out towards Arizona. And it started raining. It was raining hard, and I had my windshield wipers going. And the semi-trucks coming from the other way down in was blinding me. I couldn't get it up. And I was fixing to have to put it down in the rain. So I cranked up that bad engine that had been on fire, and boy, it looked like it a 1,000 horsepower kicked it in the butt. We went to the sky. And uh, it was a bad, bad storm out there. And it was raining. And I called a fellow waiting on the dry lake up there. I said, I'm at 6,000 feet, and I'm bouncing all over the place. He said, I'm bogged down. 90 degrees to the, to the runway. So I had to come in and land in that mud, put it up on its nose, and, uh, he, uh, he back, finally got the truck and backed it up and left and to bring me a mechanic and some oil for that engine to see what was the matter. And, uh, I carried a, a gallon jug of high test gasoline right there beside me. So if I ever thought if they ever come in behind me, I was going to throw that that gasoline on the load and set it on fire. Maybe there wouldn't be any evidence. So after all what I'd been through, I was just dying for a drink of water, and there was a jug of water sitting there, too. Well, I reached and got that jug of gasoline and took a big slug. (laughs) (laughs) I was having a mighty bad day. And I spent the night on on the linoleum of that place shaking like, oh, man, what a terrible, terrible mess. And the mechanic came out there the next morning cylinder was split wide open you know, we disconnected the oil lines and fuel lines to it and fired it up and I took it out of there and took it home one side burnt plumb off so that was the, the end of that the rewards are great but the trips are not always that easy you might have a smooth flight one time next time you could be shot at out of the sky or you could have engine trouble or a fire on board and you're you're stranded out there in the boonies um, it's not as easy as it may be as it sounds folks to be a successful uh, smuggler uh, it may be your last trip that you take now Roger you spent a lot of time flying in and out of Mexico how did you come to get involved in Columbia I want to talk um, about the uh, Columbia days and uh, your introduction to the Medellin cartel tell me about Columbia all right, I was uh, in my home one day in Santa Barbara, and this uh, old uh, airplane broker, he was a sport. I'd been known him, bought several air from him. Cameron was his name. And he came up with a nice, uh, handsome young lawyer from Bogota, Colombia. And they wanted me to, wonder if I'd unload a 65 tons of pot off the coast of California. Uh, what the percentage? We made a deal. They brought a fine bottle of wine. And, uh, but he said, you know, the ship came up once and the captain wants to make sure you'll unload it. So he wants to make sure you put up a deposit of $65,000, uh, to pay for the fuel in case you're not, you can't unload it. So I thought, well, my airplanes are worth more than that. Every time I trip, won't be, I'll do it. So I gave him the $65,000 and they left and that was the end of that. <laughs> they didn't show up. So I called a flight down to Bogota and went to see the lawyer. 
And I said, all right, mister, where's my money? Well, I gave it to the captain in this. I said, no, now it don't work that way. You got it. You got to give me their money back. Well, let me introduce you to somebody. So we got in the plane and flew to, uh, flew to Medellin. Oh, beautiful town. I just think that just one of the pretty places on earth. That was just lovely. And we went up on a skyscraper and there at the top of it was a guy like Winston Churchill and he was drunk. And they said that he had 20 tons of cocaine and this and the other. So, and he wanted to be flying. He'd pay $5,000 a kilo. But he wouldn't sober up. He'd just drink like three quarts of whiskey a day. But he had a nice wife and home out there. And so she said he'll sober up one of these days and he got plenty of work. So I thought, now this is, this is something else. So I waited around and so he was having a birthday party. So I, uh, they were taking people over in uh, small airplanes to, uh, to, to his birthday party on the on the coast there, just uh, south of Panama, between there and Ecuador, somewhere about halfway down that way, and that was a most unusual place that you'd ever see. He, uh, so we landed in small planes, and all the planes went over there. I met Mario and Matilda Sanchez, and uh, she spoke English real well. She spoke French and been to a convent school. So. Uh, when we landed there, there was D-8s with a rusting out, brand new one. There was airplanes that was pushed over, Cessna with a, I remember with floats on it. They had left those there where they bought new ones down and they didn't have to pay the duty, 300% or whatever it was at that time. So anyhow, it was a lovely place. So I went walking down the beach and there was a river of red mud coming in. The beach was red from that red clay. And there was a nice-looking young woman there, a rather inexpensive-looking dress, looked like just a housewife. And uh, she started walking with me and talking with me, and I was just walking along the beach with her. And Matilda and Mario were coming the other way. And uh, Matilda said, Roger, Mario tells me to tell you that you're walking with the most vicious, the girlfriend of the most vicious killer in the Colombian. He suggests you get away from her as quick as you can. Oh, boy. So I walked up to the crowd of people and excused myself, and there was nothing to it, just a five, ten-minute walk there with them. So that night, they put me in a bunkhouse. A lot of people had little little houses on stilts and all that. There must have been 300 people. That was the beginning of the Medellin cartel. They got together and all these people, they was judges and police chiefs from every town in in Colombia. They decided to get together and uh, make sure that they, they stopped killing each other. So uh, the deal was the Medellin cartel was like an insurance company. For 10000 cocaine cost $10,000 a kilo in Colombia at that time. It was expensive there. And... Uh, these people, the Medellin cartel, they would insure it for $10,000. They would deliver it to Miami and give it to you again there, your man. And if it was intercepted anywhere, they would replace it in Colombia. Because before that, the little man that had 10 kilos, he'd put it to somebody to take up, and that fellow would uh, say, looking, all right, 10 kilos busted in Omaha. Oh, I'm so sorry, you're Yours was busted and bang, bang, somebody dead. So with this insurance company, just exploded with the co- cocaine. I guess I heard they had 100 tons stacked up down wow. there one time. 
every little man down there wanted to quit it with them. But anyway, that night, about 10 o'clock, it was quite party kind of people doled off. And I went in there and standing there talking to some men. And there was a man just pushed that little woman right in that room, right on me, knocked me backwards. Wow. Ah, rah, rah. He's cussing and carrying. <laughs> and his friends got around him and patting him on the shoulder and tatting him down. This not now. Oh God, I guess I'm, I'm what? fixing to tangle with a club worst killer. <laughs> so anyhow, that was Mr. Blue Escobar. And I, I didn't wow. meet him later on. I met him. He didn't remember that night. <laughs> Pablo Escobar. Amazing, folks. Yeah. We're with Roger Reeves, if you're just joining us. Uh, he is the author of his memoir called Smuggler. And he lived to tell these tales. This is amazing. This is not a third party we're talking to or a book read about a, a character we've never been able to interview. This is the man himself. He was there at the beginning of the Medellin cartel. Now, to put kind of a time frame on it, what are we talking about, Roger? Is this the mid-70s, early 80s? That was 1980. 1980. Now, to understand a little bit more about um, the environment of that time, okay, um, of course, you have marijuana was probably one of the biggest uh, things being traded at the time. Was that pretty much a Mexico crop? And then um, Colombia was known for cocaine. Is that how it worked? Well, it started off, but then Colombia, over around Santa Marta, started producing it by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tons. And they sent, sent ships and barges, so we weren't even touching it. And that stuff was, the Mexican stuff was $60, 80 90 The uh, Colombian marijuana was bringing $300 a kilo, a pound. So wow. they was they was killing those, but I was I was I was too far away from it out in Southern California. I didn't even know about it. That I was certainly would have changed much earlier. So Mexico and Colombia were both doing marijuana at one time, and then I know Colombia became more well known for the cocaine later. Um, That's right. Cocaine in Colombia at that time, nineteen eighty. Um, who was growing this stuff? Was it? Uh, Farmers spread out across the um, the country. Were there already cartels that are formed that were, you know, doing it in a, in a bigger way? Who's producing this stuff at that time? Who are the players, in other words? Well, okay, there was uh, as far as the growing of it, that was just just catching on in Colombia. It was a lot. Of it was coming from Peru and uh, and um, Bolivia. I'd fly the base up from Bolivia okay. and across the jungle, and it be processed in. Uh, in Colombia, and uh, I didn't. I didn't do much of that. But anyway, that was where it was. That was some of that. And then the ether was the big one to be flown in from uh, from Panama to make it with. That was two big things. You could get a million dollars a trip with a DC three to fly the ether, but it was so dangerous until not many people made it very long in that business. It was so dangerous that they they keep it in the drums underwater to keep it from burning people alive. Amazing. So, uh, and that's a key ingredient. The, uh, um, Whereas the, yep. I guess the the coca leaf was, you know, people grow up around this stuff. It's indigenous to these countries. People would chew on it, but to to turn it into a, um, you know, to to cocaine, you would need other ingredients like the ether, and that was something they'd have to import into the country, right? So you could have all the that's right the coca leaf you want, but without the other ingredients, and you're not going to be able to make the the powder. Is that right? 
that they called it base. I think they used gasoline or some kind of fuel, okay. and they they got the base. And they needed the, but now they do it with microwaves. I don't know how they do it now, but it's real oily, and the stuff we had was crystals, just really real crystals and very light and fluffy. Uh, it was a uh, much prettier stuff than the stuff later on I carried. It was uh, gray and looked like uh, looked like modeling clay or something like that. That's amazing. Uh, so we're we're talking 1980. You find yourself there at uh, really the formation of the Medellin cartel and uh, enter the uh, infamous Pablo Escobar. Um, how did you keep from getting killed, uh, making the mistake of walking with his girlfriend on the beach? <laughs> yeah, she didn't. I don't think she was his girlfriend. She didn't know why. She, I don't know why he invited me to come here. <laughs> like the poor poor lady, you know. Uh but in anyhow his he was he was he was drinking and his friends three or four of them, I mean I hadn't done anything and they knew it. So they was they was patting him on the back and got him out of there. But it was all right. It wasn't it only lasted a minute, but I uh oh, he was jealous. Oh yeah. I guess she wouldn't oh I later on she wouldn't go to the bedroom with him. So that's why he pushed her in there with me. Well you're gonna see more of this guy later in the story, folks. Uh we're live with Roger Reeves. Hey, Roger, um, at any time you need a bathroom break or a coffee break, just let me know. We'll take a five-minute break. But um, I'm excited to dig into this story. Now, did anything come of that meeting there, or was that uh, basically a dead end for you? What happened on that island? Did you make any new contacts or get any uh, jobs uh, as a result? Yes. I used this Mario Matilde, and, and they, uh, we did a, 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 I did one load with one fellow night and the person I give it to, Bill Barbosa, and I flew it up, and it was supposed to be 300 kilos, and it was only 165. And uh, they, uh, I give it to the man, Bill Barbosa, and somebody shot him in the stomach. So it was about three months before I got I got paid. Wow. I thought, all right, I don't fool with him. I went back, and Mario Matilda took me into a uh, took me up in in Begatus, about I don't know, 10 or 20 miles south of uh, Medellin, a lovely little town. A little village, really, and went up went up the mountain there a little ways, and went into a. It was a, a gate that they lifted up. They had a couple of men there to, in a little guardhouse, and lifted that gate up. And went up into an old cobblestone street, uh, just a little road, right around, and oh, I guess quarter of a mile, and under these big old trees with the bromeliads all in it was an old house there. I mean, that house must have been three hundred years old. Must have been a museum piece with a porch on it and cobblestones and hitching rails. And there was men out there in their fedora hats waiting and waiting. They was waiting to get in to see the patrons. So I was ushered right in. And there was a beautiful woman. They offered me a cup of coffee. And I went in and met George Ochoa, Jorge Ochoa. And uh, this Mario introduced me. And uh, he asked me about the airplanes I'd had and what experience I'd had crossing the border. And I told him all that. And he had 12 different big telephones across his desk. And he told oh, wow. this one's from New York, this one's from Chicago, and this one was from Los Angeles and Seattle. So each each telephone was where his salesperson was, so they could call him on that one, and he knew which it was. So he said, so I told him, and he was impressed with the airplanes that I had. I had DC-3 and a Beach-18 and an Aero Commander turbojet. And so uh, he said, just a minute, I would like to get my partner. So he went next door and brought a man over. And who is it? The same man and <laughs> pushed a woman in a few months before. It's Pablo Escobar, and wow. we shook hands. And wow. He didn't remember me at all. 
he was in that same old house with Jorge. And uh, so he told me and asked me, and I said, you know, and he said, well, we got all the cocaine you can you can fly. And they paid $5,000 a kilo. So that was two of them. And so anyhow, I went to work for him, and I worked uh, about two, oh, two years. And then that's when I hired Barry Seal and all, all that story I can get into later to fly we're, for me. We're in an amazing time in history. Um, Roger is there really at the beginning. Uh formation of the Medellin cartel and very fast uh, these cartels grew I mean I just had to look it up there was a movie I'm sure you've seen by Al Pacino called Scarface and uh, that really talks about um, the cocaine cowboys down in Miami Miami Beach and that's only 83 when that came out that stuff had already been active so I only can imagine this stuff just grew by leaps and bounds quick now Folks, I told you this was a special guy. I don't know anybody else who's ever been in the room with Jorge Ochoa and Pablo Escobar still alive. Roger uh, may be the last man standing. He survived it. Um, And there's a great ending to this story. We'll tell you about that later. Uh, Roger, you're in with these two guys. Now, at that time in the cartel, was Jorge and... um, Pablo, were they partners in the same business? Were they both running their own uh, organizations? What was really the makeup of who was running the show at that time in Columbia with the cocaine? I understand that there was five major players there. I only met I only met the the, the Ochoa brothers. There was three of them, okay. and, and Jorge. There was another Gacho, the Mexican. But I, did, I didn't meet them, and I, I suppose that, that uh, there was another one. I can't think of the, the German, I, but I believe they had about rooted him out by that time. So were but, they really uh, the same uh, organization, or did they each have their own territories? Um, definitely no, these two guys are working together. The same I think, though, that um, the Ochoas, okay, in my airplane, I put uh, 300 kilos, and later on, when Barry Seals would fly, they'd put 500 they were superstitious with me. My first load was 300, and that's your lucky number. They wouldn't change it. I said, God, I mean, it's another million dollars I can make on a load if you just put load the airplane up. No, no, senors. Yours is, yours is 300. And he'd fly down with the same airplane and put 500 in it. So anyway, they but in, in the airplane, each, it was uh, the different farmers, or let's say the different producers, would put uh, like a brand. Like you branded their cattle with three X's or a snake or zeros and just just yes. cattle brands, and these would be on the duffel bags, and the duffel bags would be locked with twenty five kilos in each one. Well, those they'd load my airplane up with those, and I would give them to a man named Lito in Miami, and he would give the whoever the bags belonged to to the owners. They were locked, so I noticed that. Uh, the Ochoas had way, way, way two thirds of it or more over over Pablo. Wow! So they were a, a big, big distributors. They just kept their mouth shut. Most of Pablo got killing people later on, got famous, but he wasn't he wasn't a big one. And then the Ariella brothers from Cali was even bigger than all of that put together. Amazing! They, they shipped one ton load. Columbia is an amazing place. Uh, amazing people. Um, now, I have to ask you this question. You're there with, in 
in the same room with Ochoa and Pablo. What was your first impression of these guys? Um, what do you think about them? Did you see anything particularly evil about them? Were they just down-to-earth people, businessmen? What's your first impressions that you remember? <laughs> well, I remember that George Ochoa had a likeness about him. He was like a like a good person. Uh, I don't know how you can say it, but just sometimes you just look at people and they have a brightness about them. They're, sure. they're all right. Now, Pablo didn't have that, but he didn't have look like an evil person. He just looked like a normal, right-there working man. You know, that's, that's all I could say. Shook hands with him, and he was just nice enough. He was almost meek. Ochoa was a little bit more um, diplomatic, more restauranteer. They, they, their family's own restaurant, or a big restaurant down there. So he was more personable than Pablo Escobar. He was fine enough, though. He would, you would have never thought about it. He was going to be a, uh, blow airplanes out of the sky and kill 400 judges and blow up the Palace of Justice and kill yeah. all those people, all the thousands of policemen. No, you'd have never dreamed it. You know, um, when you're in the room with these guys, uh, was it just you, or as I might suspect, did they carry an entourage with bodyguards armed to the teeth? What's it like being in a meeting not, with those guys? Not at all. I was in there with, with Mario and his wife that graduated from high school with these guys. Wow. So they knew each other, their friends right in the little village there, so I, I just got, I just met these people. And they know there was nothing. I, later on, I noticed that um, Jorge had a pistol arrow with him, a little chubby fellow I guess he must have been a crack shot because he, he had him drive him everywhere and even my friend had a had a little man that had a machine gun pistol in the pickup it was dangerous down there at that time you you could hear gunshots going off any night down oh, yeah. the street so uh, you, you'd be careful and we were riding bicycles and saw two dead people side the path they'd been killed the night before so wow. uh, that was it, it was that uh, it, was, it was it was some danger yes now is there like a Excuse me. I'm sure there's some rules you're, when you're when you're working with these guys that uh, they demand um, loyalty, and you don't ever screw one of these guys. Uh, you don't get a second chance, right? So, for example, you may be picking up a load as the pilot smuggling this, and when you um, you're expected to get to your your point, deliver the goods. Um, but if you were not to arrive on point, or maybe something was missing from the cargo. Would you be given a second chance? Yes, you would. Uh, because, well, one thing, it just couldn't happen. I mean, it's nonstop from Columbia to Louisiana, the United States, and you get it out and put it in the car. Now, if one of the drivers of the car stole something, uh, there would be uh, be some trouble. Oh, yeah. But, uh, uh, but uh, I was in the room with Pablo, uh, not Pablo, but, but Jorge, and there was a guy out here somewhere in California, I don't know where he was, but anyhow, they was talking about him, and he had stole, he'd had 50 kilos, and at that time, it was selling for $50,000 a kilo, so what is that? Uh, anyhow, a lot of money. A lot of money. And, uh, two and a half million, and he had, he'd gone to Las Vegas and lost it. Oh, boy. And so the fellow, so the fellow was asking Jorge, says, like, what should we do? You know, they was serious about this. Right. And he says, is, is he a good salesman? He said, he's one of the best. He said, well, give him some more. And that's, that's uh, he can wow. pay it back. Well, that's, that's what happened. Uh, it's amazing. They give him a shit. Yeah. And, and on mine, I was, uh, I mean, the, a pilot back then was just in extreme demand. Just unbelievable. They couldn't find him. It's like, 
when I'd, I'd, I'd take uh, 300 kilos and I'd say, when do you want me to come back? And they said, we're waiting on you, senor. I could go every day. And that was $1.5 million a day that I made at that time. Good and it was just cash on the barrel. Now, you make your delivery, and would you get paid on site, or would they pay you at a later date? Like, how does it work? They, they The pipeline. They'd have to wait. They'd have to give it to their people. They'd have to take it to New York. The money would have to come back. So it was two or three weeks behind. Okay. So but, they said, you can wait, or you can come every day, and the money will we'll guarantee you payment. Okay. And after but a while, that, you that begin... That real good until I jail and... Uh, there's three and a half million dollars they didn't pay when after, after I went to jail, so that was right. kind of soured me. So you begin to build a relationship with them. They trust you, and they give you more and more work. Um, how did things heat up in the next few years? Um, did um, the the whole cocaine trade just explode? Because then we hear about the money that would. Well, one thing is, of course, um, you got to get it to America, but then. Now the real problem is, what do you do with the cash? So in some of the documentaries I've seen, um, the cartels would make friendships with the banks, and they would begin to wash the the money, and they say much of Miami was built on the drug trade. What can you say about that? Well, I, I'm sure it was. It was just at that time um, in the early 80s. I was living in Miami. I lived at Key Biscayne, a lovely place out there, and uh, that's where I do my business. Um after some loads, and I had, I believe, when I got $7 billion in my pocket, I got above the fog and couldn't get down one night. And I had to come down to Glide Slope there on the International Runway in New Orleans and sit there all night long in the middle of a runway with a load of cocaine behind me. And I thought, I'm never going to do this again. <laughs> so I quit. But that's when the fellow just begged me, Roger, don't you know somebody? And that's when I hired Barry Seal. And then I hired him, and then I hired a guy from California to fly for me. I had two lines running in. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, that's amazing. So I, I got so, out and moved to keep this, and that's when all the the shot up the liquor store and all that sort of stuff. Right while I was there, just right down the street from me. Now you can only do much, so much as one individual. So uh, a real entrepreneur would have again uh, begin to multiply his efforts by hiring people, and then after a while, you got a fleet of aircraft flying. That's a that's a smart way to do business, and you're a smart man. <laughs> Um, and you would bring on these different pilots. Now, um, as you begin to build friendships with uh, Jorge and Pablo and they could trust you, um, would there be times where, okay, you've done the deal? Hey, come on down. I want you to hang out at the ranch. Did, now, i got to ask you this question. Did you ever get to hang out with Pablo down at one of his uh, compounds down there? I understand he had some beautiful homes, including... One that had like its own private zoo. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I've been there, but uh, no, I didn't hang out with Pablo. I worked uh, w- directly for George Ochoa. Uh, he he was the one. He was my, he was one I was working for, and he was partners with with Pablo Escobar. And Jorge invited me and my my family out to his ranch. He had he had as, as beautiful and more beautiful than the one you're speaking out down toward between Cartagena and Barranquilla on a huge lake. Oh, it was just wonderfully nothing oh i can't say ostentatious but it was just just a beautiful taste just wonderful that place was nice so we we spent the weekend with him down there uh good good carne asada pardon <laughs> good carne asada oh yes we had yes we did 
Oh, yes. But did you know he, they, there was no alcohol, there was no drugs, they didn't even smoke, those, those people didn't. Uh, they was you just would be different than you think. All family, family brothers man. and sisters and children and I remember the big swimming pool there and they, they had a room full of, you don't have a bathing suit, we got a room full of them. Just go in and pick you out one. And uh the younger brother was a young uh, Fabio and uh I guess Saturday afternoon they had real fighting bulls. He had a real bull fight right there on, on the on the ranch with them. And uh it was nice and they had the ultra lights with uh on pontoons and you go skiing with the behind motorboats it was it was just rich beyond belief now we've heard stories and seen uh there's there's been some of these specials talking about escobar's millions there's a whole documentary series people are trying to find the drums that he buried uh, and it's been reported that you know he was making billions of dollars a year do you, do you think those estimates are true pablo and his you know, at at his height, they were the cartel down there were they were making some some buck. Is that true? Well, I just tell you, you can just figure it this way. Just in one year, just take one year that I was flying, or had my pilots. I don't remember how they did. Uh, thirty loads a piece at five hundred kilos a piece. So that was a uh, thirty loads times a uh, thousand. That thirty thousand kilos. That's thirty tons. Wow! And at that time, bringing thirty thousand dollars a kilo, it dropped from fifty down to about thirty. At that time, so how many million or billion is that? And that was what they were getting, and that that's just what one person can tell you that he did in that year. I heard that Pablo would spend something like two thousand dollars a week just on rubber bands <laughs> to put around his money. Um, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, the biggest problem is where yeah. do you put all the cash? Um, ask you again um, it, the, tr- the report is true Pablo actually had his own zoo you got to see that is it true yes yes hippopotamuses I did. and it, everything it was more of a it was more of an open field with the animals loose that's crazy and then it was like a zoo within cage it was, they weren't caged animals like a zoo it was just like the, uh, all the zebras and the all, all that kind of stuff I remember being out there walking around, and the birds, huge, huge a, 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 you know, apiary or avery uh, for the birds, and uh, I, I didn't. There was no zoo like bears and tigers that I saw when I was there. I heard that uh, Pablo had brought in some hippopotamuses, and long after he's gone, those things mated, and they're all over Colombia right now. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that. So you, uh, you, you primarily worked with Jorge. But of course, you had some interaction with Pablo. Um, yes. Were there ever any times where you got scared and thought, "Hey, I might not make it out of here alive"? Um, surely he had to have bodyguards and the like around him. And I know later he developed a reputation. You know, uh, basically, I think there was a term—I forget the Colombian name for it—but it was like, uh, "You take uh, take the money, you take the bullet." And um, oh yeah. Um, Blue more was, plateau, they called it. Lead or lead, silver or lead. That's it. Uh, did yeah? Did well, you ever I, have fear? I just okay. I didn't. Have, I didn't have any fear of it at all. I just felt like an honored guest wherever I went, for sure. Okay. And I went with him. He had a small airplane, and he flew with the fella. And we flew up to a ranch. I don't know where it was. And I guess he was trying to get it started. And they had uh, looked like the 
a lot of trees was down and been burned over and they had some rat pretty cattle and we stopped at a little house there and then we got out and uh, we got on some motorcycles <laughs> and I can you ride a motorcycle of course I can ride a bicycle they little trail bikes and I just revved it up and took off and they were just waiting they was a ditch there across that place and I hit that thing <laughs> the, deep, the grass was about knee deep and that front wheel went in that ditch and I went sliding 50 feet on, on my nose <laughs> and they just busted laughing so then we got some horses and I uh, was going to go look at the horses and he handed me a little machine gun pistol that hung around my neck wow so I guess he was scared that it would be uh, uh, and I noticed there was, there was five or six of us there was all on the lookout so, but it wasn't that way with with Jorge Ochoa at all. He didn't he didn't show any. Uh, he wasn't killing people, and he wasn't expecting to get killed. This is amazing. We're live with Roger Reeves. His book is called Smuggler, available on Amazon. If you're just joining us, so Roger, you develop working relationships with them, and um, of course, their cartels are um, growing at that point. Um. Tell me about another character that you ran across. His name was uh, Howard Marks. Who was Howard? Oh, oh my. I, uh, I'll i try to say the best I can about Howard, but uh, I don't have a lot of good things to say about him. He, was, he wrote the book Mr. Nice. He was a Ph.D. of philosophy and physics out of Oxford, I believe, and was well known over there in England. And I got hooked up with him. I moved to Spain because of him and lived there. And we hauled some big, big loads. We hauled 20-ton shiploads of hashish out of Pakistan. I believe a 17-ton shipload of marijuana uh, out of Thailand. And uh, we lived close together there and hobnobbed a little bit on the island of Mallorca. Well, he had some uh, three-and-a-half tons of hashish down in Morocco he wanted me to hire. So I, I bought a ship and... Uh, haul the load you're going to give me two million dollars and uh so i hauled the two million dollars and went to pick up my money and he had me he had the police arrest me at the dutch airport and i escaped so then like an idiot i went back to him and got arrested again so uh i was arrested in spain uh on german charges because i hired a german citizen to run that ship they didn't catch the hashish so anyway he uh I got I got eight year sentence in Germany and escaped wow. from that German prison, and uh, that was all because of Howard. Howard turned me in for young well, shadow of a doubt to keep paying me the two million dollars after the big deal we'd done. I just couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe that he had done it, but he did. And looking back on it, no doubt. Well, that's that's no friend that would do that to you. Um, we'll move <laughs> no, on from Howard. No. Uh, enter a guy named Barry Sills now. You're flying for Jorge Ochoa, doing some work for him and Pablo, and you probably had more work than you could handle yourself. I saw an interview where you were in, uh, I think, Honduras, you said, and got on a plane and nearly, nearly missed the plane, and lo and behold, you're sitting by a guy who's none other than Barry Sills. Pick up with the story there. Uh, how did your friendship uh, progress with Barry and you all get to working together? once you met on that plane in Honduras? Well, I, I'd gone to a laundry, and uh, I told my wife and the children, go get on that plane. It's easier for me to get on it uh, another flight standby than it is because it's full tourist season or something. So they got on, and I came with a big load of 
clothes on my back and the plastic bags and the plane was taxiing out and I ran out, waved at him and the pilot waved at me. And then I saw Murray's face in the cockpit and, <laughs> and the wheels dipped down and the guy put the, it was a brand new 727, he put the stairway out front way and then he took off like I was a hitchhiker. And then he stopped again, put it all the way out. And I went up and the whole crowd clapped. Oh, big happy, get on. <laughs> and I went on down about half. And there was my little girl, she was, uh, I guess, t- nine or ten, Miriam. And uh, she was sitting in the middle, and there's this big fellow sitting inside the window, and bright, clear eyes, and sharp-looking fellow. And I thought, oh, boy, I bet he's DEA or CIA, but the seats weren't assigned, so maybe I'm all right. So I sat down, and we didn't even speak. I buckled up, and the plane took off. And the wheels came up, clunk, and then in a minute or two, it went click, click. And Miriam said, what was that, Dad? I said, he just turned his autopilot on, honey. And the fellow leaned over and he said, you fly these things? I said, I got a few hours, mister. And he said, my name Barry Seal. How you do? Wow. <laughs> so that's how we met. <laughs> and he said he had just got out of jail. He'd taken a load of explosive down there to the Cuban Contras. He'd taken a DC-6 with, a, with explosive to, for them. And he lost, he lost his job with the Transworld Airline. He was a 747 captain at one time and been with the CIA. And we chatted all the way up, and I was scared of him. I thought, boy, he just... But when we got off in New Orleans, there was about 20 people there to meet him. And his mama and all the folks and his wife and little children hugging on him, and they crying. I said, that fellow did just get out of jail. So after after the all that was over, I went over and gave him my address. I said, come out to California, Barry. I may have some work for you. So he came out, and I... I had a brand new Aero Commander, 690 Aero uh, B Turbo, uh, Aero Commander Turbo prop. I said, let me go up and see, see what you got. Well, we got up to about 10,000 feet, and he rung that thing out till <laughs> he did everything. It's just like an air show, and that made me sick. I said, that's enough, buddy. Let's put it on the ground. So he did a falling leaf like Bob Hoover did in the air shows. Stop. So I said, man. You hired, and I told him I'd give him a million dollars a trip to fly for me. Amazing. Columbia. Told him I could land in, uh, you land in Nicaragua, refuel. He just couldn't believe it. So, uh, we, uh, I hired him, and he said, I said, but it needs tanking now. He said, well, I know a place in, in Mena, Arkansas. Give me $10,000, and they'll tank it. So he flew away with my airplane, $10,000, and a few days later, he said, meet me in Baton Rouge. So I went there, and that plane was tank from stem to stern. I mean, that thing, I reckon it would fly from Bolivia to Canada. Tanking means and, uh, uh, so was, you put on a bigger tank so you can carry more fuel and go further? Oh, yeah. It took all the seats out of it, everything in it, and they just had these tanks. I guess there's six or seven of them, probably a whole 50 gallons a piece or more. Wow. And uh, they, each one of them had a fuel pump, except the one in the in the uh, uh, inside didn't need a pump because you got pressure. Uh, pressure I tank of put the air put the fuel right out if you just open the valve so you didn't have to do that now these are um i'm not a aircraft expert but are these called turbo prop planes in other words they're using propellers um they're your propellers but jet engine pushing it but But he didn't want that he wanted a plane called a a panther at that time they were four hundred thousand dollars in there a piper plane a twin engine uh and they put big horsepower, 400 horsepowers on each side, Q-tip props so they didn't make any noise, the propellers didn't. They were quiet and long range, and they were they were absolutely wonderful. They looked small and 
they they look good on the runway or or in the line of planes. They don't stand out like those old planes that I'd been flying. So you they have, look like any executive airplane. You have come across an ace pilot. Um, he's got the goods. You can trust him to fly, and um, you'll go ahead and get set up and and take out this aircraft. What is special regarding uh, Mina at the time? Uh, why Mina versus another location? What was Barry's explanation on that? Well, I just uh, I, I told him, you know, I had a, a place there in southern Louisiana, paid off $10,000, and the deputy sheriff was, his daddy owned the place, and they run there, and I just, I would just put the plane in the hangar and unload it. Yes. And uh, if not, I would land on Interstate 10. They would build an Interstate 10 across Louisiana and Texas at that time. And it was just a beautiful runway. You could just land anywhere. Just somebody have to make sure no equipment was on it. It was wow. just a white strip in the in the jungle. It was just, I, you couldn't believe how, how nice that was. I landed on it time after time. I just go out there the next day and scrub out the uh, tire marks before daylight or daylight <laughs> so they wouldn't get on to me. And, uh, but he said, no, 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 man. I'm landing in Mena, Arkansas, and I said, uh, he said, I can't get caught in Mena, Arkansas. I said, boo, anybody can get caught. He said, listen, I'm telling you, I cannot get caught in Mena, Arkansas. He said, but it's going to cost you $50,000. And uh, I said, man, what do you mean? He said, listen, it's paid off all the way to the top. Amazing. So that's uh, <laughs> who you're talking. You know who the strong boy was out there at that time. But uh, so it uh, paid off boy. all the way to the top. Amazing. Said, well, you can't get caught in Nicaragua, and you can't get caught in Colombia. So I guess we're safe, aren't we? So he flew just as fast as I'd pay him. So and he wanted that million dollars, and so he'd he'd whine, Billy. I love Barry, but he, in a good way, he'd complain about. I said, man, I got to wait till they pay me, and uh, but he wouldn't fly until I paid him. So anyway, he uh, but bothered me a little bit about his million dollars. So I got a. I got a big box and put the million dollars in it, and I was in the store, and they said these uh, stay free mini pads. So I got a box of them and put a big bow on it <laughs> and put it in there with the money. He laughed so hard till the tears come down his face. He put made a spot on the mantelpiece for that little stay free mini pads. I got to ask this detail. Um, it's time to get paid. Uh, Barry Sills has done the the job. Um, what was the currency? being used at that time. Were you paying each other on 20s? Were these all crisp $100 bills? What are we talking about? No, the Colum- no, we didn't get any $100 bill much. The Colombians took all the 100s. I got 50s and 20s. We, I, wouldn't, I didn't want any 10s. I told them I don't want any 10s. I got a few, but just 20s and 50s. Okay. And do now, you know do you know about how weighing the money? No, that, sir. That one bill weighs exactly one gram, and you don't have to count it. Just oh, separate wow. it into piles and weigh it, and it's exactly right. Good grief. So you just stick this stuff on a, uh, a scale. Um, we're live with Roger Reeves, if you're just joining us. Roger, there was a movie that came out a few years ago um, called American Made. It's supposed to be the true story of Barry Sills, played by actor Tom Cruise. Have you had a chance to watch it yet? Yes, and I bought it, and I threw it away, and I'm disgusted, and it was just about the worst thing you could imagine. There was not hardly a word of truth in there. Somebody sat in a rocking chair up in Beverly Hills and said, oh, I wonder what it'd be like, and read a little bit and just wrote some nonsense. Folks, can you imagine? Why... Can you imagine landing with a nice airplane like that on a runway 
and the people with you that you're gonna put fifty million dollars worth of co- their cocaine in your plane, and they're gonna take a gun out and rob you of your sunglasses. Can you just imagine what an idiot it had to be to think up something like that? Right. And then they're betting a hundred dollar bills or ten dollar bills. I bet he's gonna crash on takeoff. The runway's not long enough. <laughs> If you had $50 million worth of your cocaine in there, don't you think they'd build a runway as long as LAX if they needed it? That's right. I went down there one time, and it, it was getting too short, so I went down there, and, uh, uh, and the, the Columbian boys in Miami was wanting to cut me back $1,000. They were like, oh, we can only pay four. Well, I knew that they was working just like I was and trying to make some extra money. So I went down there and talked to Jorge and Escobar. Uh, and, Pablo and oh man, he said, "How much runway do you need?" I said, "We need five thousand feet if we're going to put that much fuel on there." So, next time I landed, man, it looked like you just couldn't believe it. That runway had been extended out through the jungle. I like to tell you how we how I landed. I didn't know where I was going most of the time, and I would go over a place called El Banco, and they had a little FM radio station. I don't remember the FM AM, but they had a little radio station. I believe it was something like seven twenty. And I'd dial in on that, and I'd come in at 10,000 feet. And then I'd look below me. There'd be some smaller plane, some plane there, circling. And then I'd get beside him, and we'd wiggle the wings. And I might follow him 100, 150 miles. And I'd come in, he'd land in some jungle strip down in the Amazon somewhere. And I'd land right behind him. Maybe I'd spend the night, maybe not, whatever. And they'd put fuel the plane up and wash the windshield and load it up with cocaine. I'd be on my way. So I often didn't know where I was going or what kind of strip I'd be landing at. Are you there? Yes, sir. Sorry, I had myself muted. <laughs> you feel better? There we go. I got it. I feel better. <laughs> Roger, this is amazing. Um, in the movie, they show Barry making so much money that He's having to find a place to hide it, and they show him digging holes in the yard. Is that true? Not at all. Of course, he's making so much money. I know that he made fifty million dollars. Wow! But uh, he was—he was no idiot. Uh, Tom Cruise was the most unlikely fellow. You remember uh, uh, Trump's first uh, Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson? Yeah, yeah, yes, sir. Rex Tillerson, right? Yes. Rex Tillerson. Well, Barry Seal was a similar type man. He looked like that. He had that same kind of uh, personality. He was serious, very nice man, educated, sparkling with intelligence, been CIA agent. He wasn't like a fool like they portrayed coming out of a whorehouse. That was just terrible. Just terrible. What does his fool wife think about such a thing like that? Right. It just was untrue. I heard Barry Seals say an ugly word and then smoke a cigarette. He didn't have a drink. Never. So he was, he was just a southern gentleman that liked to fly airplanes, and he had more guts than a slaughterhouse. He's the only fellow i ever seen that would just do it. <laughs> just No backup. Let's just go right right now without thinking about it. He'd get in an airplane, a strange one. He just like, he didn't even, he just like one minute look it over, and he was ready to go. He was just professional. Yeah, I don't have anything, even though he turned state's evidence, that he was left by the CIA holding the ball, and he, he went and testified for Congress, but he protected me. I was under his umbrella. All I had to do was testify with him. Now, so, I don't know if this whenever, is true or not, and you, you may not even have any knowledge of it, but I was just watching a documentary on Barry, and they were talking about uh, his early days 
as a young man flying, I think he got his pilot's license and soloed after about eight hours and was a, a pilot in, still in high school. They said that um, he was recruited to um, take weapons or something down into Cuba. And I guess that would have been the 60s era, back when JFK was in. And um, he was involved in, um, I guess, trying to launch some uh, attacks against uh, Castro to uh, destabilize the uh, the government down there. Did he ever share with you any of his work that he did flying into Cuba? No, he never never did that. I do know that he got caught with it. I understand that he might have told me about flying a DC-6. Now, that's a three-man airplane loaded with uh, uh, explosives of some sort to the countries of Cuba. But And I believe he landed in Mexico and was caught there on that. And I believe he mentioned something about that. I need to take about a two-minute break. Let's take, uh, let's take a break. And uh, we're going to be back here with uh, Roger after this break. Do you want me to um, keep you on the line or call you back in about five minutes? Uh, yes, keep me on the line. I'll, I'll keep I'll you on the line. It won't take that long. I need, I need to drink a water bath. Yes. <laughs> I had to empty some water pretty bad. That coffee got in. Um, hey, folks, yeah. we're live with Roger Reeves. This man is walking history. He was there at the birth of the Medellin cartel. Um, he was a prolific pilot smuggler carrying loads into Mexico, Colombia, have plane, we'll fly for you. And uh, he was a guy that was great at what he did. As the work increased, so did the need for more help. And enter in Barry Sills, which we're talking about now. Uh, they made a movie about Barry. Um, but how do you know that the history we've been told is true or not when we never get the opportunity to talk to the people that were there? Sadly, we can only read someone else's account. And many times history is skewed or we don't get the true story. We get someone else's opinion or what they want us to believe, well, that's not the case tonight. We have the honor of having Roger Reeves, who hired Barry Sills, who worked with him, I think did about 30 loads, worked with Roger for over two years. And if anybody knows the true story, it's this man we have here tonight. And we're getting the truth tonight. Uh, Again, Barry Sills was um, a pilot that you hired, and you and him are handling loads for Jorge Ochoa and Pablo Escobar at this time, and uh, how did the relationship go? Y'all got started. Uh, Barry was reliable, wasn't he? 100%. Absolutely to the second. He said he'd go land at 6 o'clock. He'd be there at 6 o'clock. Now, and, uh, Yeah, he brought in whatever he needed, yes. Mina of course, was a strategic location because that was Barry's home turf, and um, he had already paved the way, paid the way, so that um, y'all could uh, bring in the loads and don't have to worry about getting in trouble there. He had paid it all the way to the to the top. Now, from your understanding at the time, um, of course, 
local officials there would have to be knowing what's going on all the way to the top, but were you ever worried that uh, the CIA or the DEA were looking over your shoulder and you might um, run into some problems with them at some point? Well, I knew that the uh, DEA was watching me, but uh, it's, if you know something's watching, you can get away from it. You can go around a couple of different corners and just be through with it. They can't follow you if you if you know if if you know they're watching you. That's pretty simple to slip away from. And uh, Barry just thought uh, I, I say he was the only thing I'd say bad about Barry. He was just arrogant, <laughs> just like they can't catch me. They don't have enough sense to catch me. I mean, that was sort of his attitude. And they never did. So just he, somebody just left him out hanging the back, holding the bag. Absolutely. Now, uh, take us up on the timeline. Uh, you and Barry are working together. What year are we talking about? Uh, 81, 82. 81 and 82. Now, at this time, yes. you've been flying into Mexico, uh, Colombia, and um, how did you get over to uh, Pakistan? What's Pakistan doing at that time? Are they in opium, heroin? What's hashish? No, that hashish. Uh, I uh, I did uh, twice. Twice I did loads out of Pakistan to haul hashish, and I uh, went around the world and brought it into the British Columbia on the on the west coast there, on the uh, and unloaded it there, and then took float pl- a float plane and flew it down to Lake Oset in Washington State and unloaded it, and uh, that was that was quite a <laughs> quite a job. That's amazing. So you're operating aircraft uh, at the height of this um, smuggling business. How many people were part of your organization? Were there just about two or three of you guys flying, or well, how big it, did the organization it's grow? Complete, completely separate. And uh, the hashish was before and after the cocaine. Uh, my, my hashish was when I first made my first money. I mean, I've, I've been over there and, uh, and made, made some good money hauling a load of hashish from Pakistan back into British Columbia. Sure. But then then later on I did the marijuana out of Mexico and, and Thailand and Colombia. But uh, then then we did the cocaine through the through the early eighties until nineteen eighty two. I was in August I was arrested. And uh, that uh, and Barry continued to to fly. And he paid my, paid me for my airplanes and exactly every every penny just exactly he, he was supposed to. We're going to talk about the 82 arrest and what happened next here in just a moment. If you're just joining us, we're live with Roger Reeves. Roger, I want to take a pause for a second and ask, where can people go to get your book? On Amazon. Just look at Amazon Smuggler Roger Reeves. It pops right up. Now, do you have yeah, a website it. or any additional information you want to give out, or should they just go to Amazon? How do they find out more? Oh, uh, I have a website, but I don't. I don't do much with it. I, I'm just learning this social media. I just got out of prison, man. All this sort of stuff is just overwhelmed me. I can hardly use this telephone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm I saw your posting. I'm, I'm right. I'm it must Facebook be like yeah. Rip Van Winkle in Pardon? some ways. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, but. Yeah. Um, I know things have changed. Roger, um, let me take you back to um, just before the arrest there and when your life took a different course. Things are going smooth. You and Barry are working together. I'm sure you got all the work you can handle. And uh, 
I heard a testimony um, from a guy named Colonel Bo Greitz. I think he was on the Morton Downey show back in the 80s. And he was over looking for POWs that were left after the Vietnam War. And there's a footage, uh, a story about him going over to meet a guy named General Kaesong, who was a, um, a general over there with the North Vietnamese Army, and I think he was one of the biggest opium dealers of all time. And Colonel Bo Greitz went over there, they got him on camera, and Kaesong, I guess, wanted to, to get out of the business, but um, wanted some economic help from America. And in exchange, he was willing to blow the the cover on his um, connections, and he named a guy named George Bush and Colonel Armitage as being the guys that were working with him um, in what was called, I guess, the um, um, heroin triangle, heroin coming out of Cambodia and Laos and Vietnam. I don't know if that's a true story or not, but uh, in your time in the business, did you ever hear of any stories of um, opium coming out of the gold, the golden triangle is what they called it and uh, any involvement in maybe our CIA or some of these politicians um, involved in on the deal what do you think about that statement from Colonel Bogreitz I don't know if you ever saw him interviewed or not but did you ever run across that story I, I know something about it but I don't know and I, I have never even except in prison seen heroin or thought about it or wanted anything to do with it. So I don't yes. know anything about that, but I very had George Bush Sr.'s phone phone number in his pocket when he was killed. God have mercy. And uh, he was his and, and he uh, Bush was his mentor in the CIA and Barry told me that he had sold cocaine to Jeb and George Jr. There's a photograph of him at the uh, Opelok Airport walking across from his plane there that he has. So they bought two kilos. Now that's just what I've heard from him. Well, I can so believe he didn't it. Say anything, but I, I do know about the, the two younger ones. They was partying. Absolutely. And, of course, Bush Sr., who's dead now, he had a nickname, Poppy Bush, which many have said related to opium. And the only reason I say this is because, uh, folks, you know, um, they'll put a guy like Richard, excuse me, Roger Reeves in jail and Roger, how many years have you, did you spend total in prison? Thirty-three years in about one month. Look, you can make good money in this business, but if you get caught, they can throw the book at you. And Roger paid a heavy price, folks. Yet, you know, uh, these politicians don't ever see any jail time. And for us to say, well, you know, you do the crime, you do the time. Well, folks, the justice is not equally applied. There's many politicians, many of you know who I'm talking about out there, that deserve an orange jumpsuit. But they never go to jail. And then they throw the book at you, Roger. What they did to you, brother, is criminal. You never Absolutely. killed anybody. Um, Absolutely. I just you flew an airplane like a trucker. If I would have brought hand grenades, if I would have brought automatic weapons into the country I would have got one tenth of the time that I did and it's unbelievable point. and I got 35 years for marijuana 500 pounds of marijuana 1977 and I still owe them 21 more years God they have just, mercy every time 
out, they say that special parole starts over again. And it, it was, it was, it was, uh, Congress uh, abolished that in 1976, uh, uh, but they didn't make it retroactive. And several of the uh, districts, courts have said, uh, not our reason, like the Ninth Circuit said, it was draconian that when you do it, if you got, say, 25 years special parole and you do 24 years of it on parole, you violate it, starts all over again. And any time you're in a state prison or a county jail or a foreign prison, that they count it towards you. They'll violate your parole for it, but they won't give you the time that you spent in jail. So even though I spent all these years in jail, I still owe them more than I, as much as I did to start with. It's, you know, it's just unbelievable. It's, it's, it's it criminal. should be changed. It needs to be changed. There's tens of thousands of people in jail right now in America, maybe arrested for marijuana possession or use. And then, you know, marijuana is legal down in so many states, but they're still in, in jail doing time. Folks, this is not right. This is not right, the way we punish people. I, I just came out of a prison. and When I was first arrested in 1982, there were was, there was some, some outlaws. Now, let me just tell you how it's really happening, folks. A policeman, he gets in the academy, and he goes, and he wants to be sergeant. He wants to make a grade. Well, if he uh, if he gets two drug convictions in a in a year, and his mate gets thirty or forty, guess who makes captain? And guess it, what prosecutor when he's on the uh, hired for a prosecutor? If he gets all these convictions, guess who guess who makes judge? So they're paid to to try to manipulate any which way they can from the bottom to the top. Absolutely. So this policeman, he goes on the and gets a couple of bums, the mentally ill. They can hardly, they can hardly go, and they, they one of themselves, the other one, two or three grams of heroin, a smack or something. And he arrested both of them, so now he's got two convictions. So now they take him down before the judge, and the judge in Atlanta says, "Well, you need, you need psychiatric evaluation." Well, they don't give him psychiatric evaluation in Georgia. They, they don't have any psychiatrist or psychologist in Georgia. They ship them all by fed air to California to give them psychiatric evaluation. So 1,800 of them go through Oklahoma City transfer back and forth to have mental evaluation from one side of the country to the other. It's criminal whoever's making that money ought to be put in jail. And it's definitely got to be politicians that own Con Air. Something's wrong there, folks. I was just in that place, and I saw it over and over and over again. It, it, it's terrible what this government's doing. It's horrible it's, what it's done to people. And then um, look at all the industry inside of prisons, you know, all the slave labor and, um, you know, Bob Hope group that sell all the products to the prisons. And, you know, it's a, it's a money racket. Um, Roger... What happened in 1982? Things are going great. You and Barry are doing plenty of business together. Things changed. What happened yeah. in 82? How did you get caught? Oh, I uh, I took a plane load of money down to Grand Cayman Island. I had a plane just after I had two pilots. I laid on top of it, a big jet. <laughs> Pulled in there and put the money in the bank. And uh, I made the mistake of I, usually when I, I'd have them fly me down, I would come back to New Orleans if I was flight plan, and I had to 
the light turned off at the back, and I'd get off at the end of the uh, taxiway, and I'd crawl across the fence and go to the parking lot and get my car. But this time, I, they wanted to stay down for a day or two or do something else or go somewhere. So I said, okay, I'll catch a jet home. But when I caught a jet home, there was a, a warrant waiting for me there in Miami, uh, out in California for possession of marijuana. Wow. Five billion dollar bail. Cash. Wow. <laughs> Never to hear it. That, that's what happened to me. So anyhow, it was all over. I got uh, a five year sentence, five years probation for the taxes, and 25 years special parole. And I gave up all my property, cows, cars, cars, houses, boats, <laughs> all that stuff, stuff. I really, whatever they ask for, I give it to them. So, uh, you might enjoy this. I, I spent two years in prison, and when I got out, I'd heard that Barry had turned and was working with the government. I'd heard it while I was in prison. Uh, I don't know. My wife maybe told me or something. So uh, I hadn't been out long, and I saw uh, Ronald Reagan, blue eyes on television, said, we have absolute proof that the communist Sandinista government is in the cocaine-running business. And my, my guts turned to ice, ice water. I knew good and well. That could only be Barry that crashed that airplane on that runway. He did it on purpose. Took a thousand pictures. You can see it on uh, Kings of Cocaine. The book is a good book. And it shows Pablo Escobar carrying bales of cocaine from one from the crash plane over to another. And Barry had uh, cameras going inside and out. Click, 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 click. He took over a thousand photographs, went back in, and took the camera out. So that night he called. And uh, he said, Roger, I'm coming out to Santa Barbara tonight. I'll be at this little French restaurant downtown. And I said, oh, boy. All right. So I got there at 9 o'clock, and he was leaned upside the wall on the other end. I looked. There was no children. There was no old people in the restaurant. There was all 30, 40-year-old people, leather jackets, leather skirts. And I walked up to him, and he leaned back. And I, hey, Barry. I said, are you wired? He said, no, I'm not wired. I said, well, I'm not going to talk, friend. You just talk to me. So he started talking and told about his uh, troubles there at Mina, and it, it indicted him in three states, and he was facing three life sentences. Wow. And uh, wow. he went to, uh, got out on bail, and he went to, uh, he, what had happened, the CIA had pulled back on him on that arms for, with, with that Oliver North thing hit the fan. They, they, they pulled it. They left him holding the bag. So... Uh, he got in his jet, he got in his lear and went to Washington and knocked on Edwin Meese's door. He said, listen, they're bringing tons of cocaine up here. I can, I can help you. They didn't believe him. They kicked him out. So he went back the next day and said, listen, man, they are bringing tons of cocaine. I can do it. They got, hooked him up with a fellow, Jake Jacobson, uh, DEA agent. Now I think he'd been a crop duster down in Alabama. So, uh, he just he just cried. He said, Roger, I just couldn't do it. And the tears just went between. He put his hands up over his face, and the tears came down between, between his fingers. He said, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. He said, I've told him everything. He said, and you're under my umbrella. All you got to do is come to Miami tomorrow and testify before a grand jury, and you can have your license, you have your money, your passport. You can live anywhere in the world you want to live. You won't never be bothered again. And wow. I said, Barry, these people all the age agents. He said, every one of them. I said, well, bring your head honcho over. And so uh, this guy, Jake Jacobson, I liked him. I'd have, he'd have been a friend of mine if we'd have been on the same side. And, but uh, he uh, sat down there and he just, we talked to him and 
we had a few drinks and he said you can come to Miami tomorrow first class bring your wife or you can come down in change but he said if you come down in change he said you're never going to see your family again except in a federal prison visiting room but I guarantee you'll get life and I said well he said they had to testify before grand jury so I said alright so I got my wife and I we went down to Miami and went to see a lawyer and I said Mr. Lawyer I, I'm in a bad mess here I got, to t- I got to tell something or do something to get out of this and so he says uh, well uh, talking to the grand jury and test- testifying with the DEA is like being pregnant you're either a snitch or you're not you're either pregnant or you're not I said well I'm no snitch he said well that's what you're talking about mister he said I don't represent snitches but give me $600,000 I'll represent you wow Wow. wow. I went to see another lawyer. He told me about the same thing, but he was kinder. (laughs) (laughs) That night, I saw Barry in the La Festival restaurant, my favorite restaurant in the world in Carl Gables, Florida. And uh, him and his wife came in. My wife and I was about through eating. And so they they had done Barry knew I liked that place. So I went over, and we had dessert together, and that was January the 26th in uh, 1985, uh, 86. And I just said, Barry, they're going to kill you. No, no, this and that and the other and stuff. And that. I said, Barry, there ain't no way they're not going to kill you. They're going to kill you, friend. And he didn't believe it. He stuck his head in the sand. So I hugged his neck good night that night. And then I took my family and fled to Brazil. And I was at uh, there in, I forget where I was, but uh, I was down in Brazil and I was calling, trying to get to three and a half million dollars that Ochoa owed me and I talked to Mario and he said oh he was just joyous You're all our problems are over all our problems are over I said what he said they killed Barry last night wow and I just hung I just hung the phone up it just made me sick I cried I went back to the hotel and told Mario and Miriam and we all cried I mean I was glad that they couldn't get me a life sentence for that cocaine but I was still really sad that my friend Barry was dead I really was let me back up a second. Um, Roger, 1982, they arrested you. When you were in jail for those two years, Is did basically Barry uh, take the contract and run with it, and he continued to fly for, for Pablo and Jorge That's at right. that time? What do you That's think correct. happened that um, he ended up having to... Um, turn evidence and work for for the government and go down there with cameras um well, we know what happened he was he was he was they knew exactly what he was doing i mean the dea had enough evidence on him that they knew but they couldn't catch him so he was working with the cia or some rogue people within the cia yes and they was running that mean arc oh with whoever was running arkansas at the time yes and uh the CIA got heavily, heavily involved in the cocaine trafficking business at that time. Uh, they, they was the ones that developed crack. Crack wasn't known until some of the, one of their scientists developed it, and it became the most. Uh, cocaine was almost benign uh, at that time. Back then, it was known as a controlled substance, not as the most deadly cocaine. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Narcotic. It was, right. it was a non-narcotic control. 90 seconds. Keep going. Disregard that. Yeah. Um, All right. So uh, it was a non, non, 
non-narcotic control substance. But when the CIA showed them how to put baking soda with it and cook it on the stove, it turned into about the most addictive substance ever known to man. And I understand they put it in every city in the, the poor section of the city across the United States in one night. And wow. they were flying big planes out of here with the, with the cocaine uh, at the same time. So you read the book by James Clavell called the, uh, the Big White Lie, the CIA and the Crack Cocaine uh, Epidemic. It's got a couple of pages in there about me. And uh, he, he's, telling, he's telling just exactly what I was. He was a head CIA agent, and they tried yes. to kill him, the CIA did, for, for, for blowing the whistle on him. Well, anyway, Barry was hauling guns from Mena, Arkansas, back to the Contras in Nicaragua, to the Oliver North in that group. Now, that just had to be a front. You can't haul enough guns in a little single-engine plane, a little twin-engine plane, to do any goods in a war. Right. That was just a front for them. To, no, you can't. They're just impossible. Hauling AK-47, what are they thinking? Who, who they think is crazy. And <laughs> so they was flying those back down there, you know, small amounts with a gun, and that gave them an excuse to bring all that cocaine back into the United States. So ah. they were shipping the co- guns out with Barry flying and, and uh and landing, uh, coming back with cocaine. Well, Barry going to Columbia and hook up with the uh, his people. And get uh, he was getting one. He got a big old airplane, a C one twenty six, and he was bringing one and a half tons at the time. So he got Jacobson in there with him, and uh, they wanted to get the big boys. So they landed at Nicaragua there to the air the base, and so on takeoff that night, Barry just pulled the propellers and bailed it back in, and he tore the bottom of the airplane up some and uh, slid down the runway so then he went back up to the office and called and said we called back down and called Pablo Escobar and said we need another airplane so pa- Pablo flew up with a pilot and gave him a really nice big airplane and they pulled it right upside to the crash airplane that's where you see that's when you put the cameras in there and that's when you see uh, 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 Escobar carrying the uh, cocaine bales across with a couple of generals from the, the Sandinista army were there well all this was just so the cia could bring cocaine into the united states that was there was nothing to the guns for cocaine deal with oliver north that was just all the front for cocaine and oliver north then had to took, he had to have been a cia agent and um been on the gr- grift himself um what though caused that to stop was it two different factions you had the cia running drugs but then you had Department of Justice or one of these other groups that were trying to uh, legitimately stop the drug trade, and they became aware of it. So they catch Barry, and he's caught in the middle. What do you think? That's exactly what happened. Well, the CIA was protecting him there in Mena, Arkansas, and I don't know who else. They had Ancho of Arkansas, I believe. Yes. Or I understand. And they was all in it together. And now whenever the... All that blew up about the Oliver North and the cocaine and all that. Well, the, the CIA, those they were just some rogue agents within the, within the CIA. What the whole CIA? That's for sure. And they ran, just left Barry holding the bag. The land was in his name, the planes was in his name, the hangars in his name. Yes. Well, guess what? He decided ever which way. He's he's fair game. So he's saying, "Hey, I'm not putting up with that." So he went and talked to the. Uh, Edwin Meese, Attorney General, he went before Congress and testified for several days. So he told what they were doing. So now it's all on record. But he protected me, thank goodness. He said, I won't do anything unless you put Roger Reeves 
under my under same umbrella I get. Roger, Barry was literally a dead man walking. The CIA would probably want to kill him now. And then, of course, the cartel. Um, because at that time, I think Jorge Ochoa, he was taking refuge in Spain, and he had been arrested, and they were going to try to get Barry to uh, rat on him. Is that correct? That's correct. That's what they was after. And what what it's looking like, we don't know what it was, but that's what that's what they was after. <clears throat> they was after him bringing down the whole uh, Medellin cartel. So, um, sadly, one of these judges, I think on the state level in Louisiana, um, didn't like the feds and the fact that they were going to let um, Barry off, and they forced him to do, uh, I guess, to sleep down at uh, some Salvation Army place, I don't know, halfway house every night, and so if you want to find him, it's not going to be hard. He has to check in every night and sleep there. Who do you think actually whacked Barry? Do you think it was um, Jorge and Pablo sent the word down? Do you think it was Oliver North and the CIA? Does anybody know? What's your gut? I understand that it was the younger brother of, of, uh, of the Ochoas that hired to hit. And I... Uh, the reason that there was a man named uh, Rinaldo that actually did the killing uh, on the first load that I did. Remember for the for the bad for for the fellow that I said I'd, I wouldn't do it anymore. He right. put Rinaldo in the plane. Bad, bad looking fellow, and the guy had a Mac ten machine gun. He sat on the back with a, with the cocaine. Wow! And my make sure that I went to Louisiana. He didn't know north from south. <laughs> He'd never been out of the slum at a gene. But anyway, I took off at a, a banana plantation and that, that, that runway was clay and it was uh it looked like it had about a half inch of water on it. And that plane had little wheels and it was red hot and small wheels and the wheel wells were long, I guess they eight feet long, maybe six or eight feet long and they, and they filled up with mud on the takeoff and there wasn't nowhere for the wheels to come up. Well I was in a mess. I couldn't go back there and land. I was in the same shape I took off. So I had all that fuel, and I knew I had a place up in uh, in Belize, up in the northern part of Belize, and I'd been paying off a guy there on the ranch to, to own my marijuana load back then, so I knew an old Mr. Carter. I'm sure he's dead now. The Carter Ranch. So I told this fella, we got to land and get this, this out. No, no, Louisiana, Louisiana. <laughs> I said, well, man... We can't make it to Louisiana. We got to get some fuel, fella. We got to get those wheels up. Oh no! And he stuck that machine gun right in my ear. I'll kill you. I said, "Well, go ahead, fool. You're wow. gonna die too." <laughs> Who's gonna fly? That ranch. That's right. <laughs> we landed at the ranch, and uh, I remember what we had for lunch. That that man had a, a Mexican wife. His older people. She cooked up a delicious loon. He just he just enjoyed it. Had a young fella go out there and wash all that mud off the plane, clean the wheel wells out, and. We got in it, took off, and uh, Barry had uh, bought some cars for me or something. He had a driver somehow or another. He met this Ronaldo at that time. So this Ronaldo knows him, and he's, he's doing life in Louisiana. He's actually the one that pulled the trigger. Wow. Um, yeah, I heard a report that three or four of these Columbian dudes had come down there and shot him up with a Mac 10. Is it true they put about right. 80 slugs into him? I don't know. I, you just look on Google Barry, and you see him slumped over the wheel in that Cadillac. God have mercy. And it's just, it, 
They said he put put his hands up over his ears. There were so many bullets went in there on him. Oh, Jesus. That's horrible. You know, how yeah. sad. He really uh, was trapped, and that was, he was just trying to stay alive, and um, they got him. Um, he's yeah. going through that. You're faced with a, a decision. You can either become a stool pigeon for the, the DA and spill the beans on everybody, or not, and then they're going to probably try to uh, bury you under the jail. So you made a run for it. Where did you go? You went to Brazil? I went to, Bra- went to Brazil, yes. What is it like being on the run? Um, did you think that you could get over there and, and probably live in peace, or were you always having to look over your shoulder? No, after we got there, no. You got you got enough money. It, it certainly helps. And I, I kept my mouth shut. I didn't make a phone call or a letter or anything back to the United States. I, I had two people that I could call. And uh, we went down and we got Brazilian. Well, first off, got French passports. And then I got uh, we got family. We got Brazilian passports. And we was living in Brazil. And I would have stayed down there. I was looking at growing uh, soybeans uh, out in the western part of Brazil. And I looked at the... I went out there to see about a 30, uh, what would be 30,000 hectares, about 70,000 acres, $6 an acre, really good land. And, uh, it wouldn't have took a lot to clear it. <clears throat> I took my wife out there, the big lake on it, and she just cried. She said, if I die in this godforsaken country, please don't leave my bones here. <laughs> so I said, oh, let's get out of here. So we, we took off and <clears throat> went down a trip through Argentina. And then we got a flight out to Holland. She's from Holland. So we went back to Holland and stayed for a while. And then we lived in Europe. That's when I met Howard Marks, and he was my downfall. So you actually took a um, you took a hit and had to go to jail for two years, and then you took a detour, went down to South America, and uh, continued working. Now, did you also uh, take loads on ships at any time, or was it all yeah. just aircraft? I was on, on ships after that. They were just Amazing. about to stop the aircraft. At that time, they got that over-the-horizon radar that bounced the radar off of the ionosphere, and they can see they can see anything on the sea or the land, anywhere. Amazing. It's, it's crystal clear. It's just oh. over. Now, this is, an off the wall, this is an <laughs> off-the-wall question, uh, but I heard after the uh, fall of World War II that Hitler and about 10,000 Nazis escaped and they went to South America, especially Argentina. Did you run into any of the Third Reich down in South America? <laughs> yes, I, I, it was a lot of the whole villages that are, are still German down there. Really? And uh, Oh, yeah, we met people all over, yes. I heard Mingale, he was alive until about 1980 down in Brazil, and then <clears throat> some of the other guys went down to Argentina. I believe it's probably true. Um, but you couldn't sit still for long. Let me, let me, buddy, let me, buddy. Let me butt in right there. Yes, we moved. We moved to an island called Guadalajara, down the hill from uh, from San Paulo, about oh, an hour or so drive, and we rented a house there on a, a canal right close to the beach. wasn't was a nice house, six hundred dollars a month in Brazil gets you something nice. Oh yeah, and we had been in there. We'd been in there a day or two, and here was the police and helicopters all over our house. Whoa, man, my my. <laughs> what on earth? It scared the daylights out of me. What it was, that was when they found Mingle's bones. There were two doors up from me in the canal. No they way. They were taking him out and getting all it. That was, yes. So that, that was there in 1986. They found his bones, and they were dredging them all up, and that's what it was. Holy cow. This was in Brazil? 
Yeah. Um, they've, you know what? The island of Guad. Go ahead. The island of what? That was the island of Guadalajara, where they found his bones and the dental records. It, somebody, I don't know why he was in that canal. Did somebody killed him or put him in there? I don't know what. I don't even remember now. After this, nearly forty that's years. A, ago. That's amazing. But, uh, yeah, amazing. That was exactly about this. <laughs> Me and him went to the same place. Can you imagine? Canal and I did. That dude was in Brazil. Uh, he was still alive when you were down there. Um, I think Martin Bormann, Hitler's number two, lived and died over there in Paraguay. Did you ever get into Uruguay or Paraguay, by the way? Yes, I did. I like Uruguay. That was a lovely little country. Paraguay, when I was there, it was just run by Strassner, and I, I went to talk to some of his nephew about maybe doing something, yes. and it was just like, Alarm bells going off in my brain. Get away, get away, get away. <laughs> Those are, you know you're going to get skint there, killed. Oh, yeah. Those are crazy places down there. Um, Absolutely, yes. This is an amazing story. So what happens after you leave Brazil? You worked in um, I, uh, worked a while with Marx, Mr. Nice. He wasn't Howard Mr. Marks, nice, though. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. We, I did work work with him, and uh, we did a 20-ton load out of Pakistan to British Columbia. Then we went to Thailand and did another load of uh, marijuana to to, uh, uh, to British Columbia also across the Pacific. And uh, then that's when I did the load to England, and that's when he turned me in instead of paying me. Good grief. What <laughs> happened when he three, turned three you in? Did they, with him. did they pick you up, throw you in the uh, slammer? Yeah, they, they arrested me in Spain. But I got away from them when they arrested me, and uh, I, I quite. And then they come again, arrest me. I got away, and the third time I just didn't even run. So I was on the island of Mallorca, and I stayed in Spain there. Uh, uh, they took me to, to the court. I didn't know what I was in charge with. You charged with Germany for using a German citizen in an international crime to import three tons of hashish from Morocco to England. What? Well, that's not even a crime. You couldn't imagine. They didn't get anything. But the captain had told. I'd given him $400,000, and he bought him a long cigar and a big car, and <laughs> they arrested him and asked him and got the money, and they said, if, if, if you'll tell us who give you this money, you'll be home by Christmas. Well, they didn't tell him which Christmas. <laughs> that was, so we he got seven years, and I got eight. But anyway, they took me to court, and I was up on the third floor, I believe it was 31 feet, what I heard somewhere. And uh, the judge was a little late, and they had four policemen guarding me. And two of them went to smoke. I ran across the room, and uh, the stenographer was there filing her nails. And she was nine months pregnant. I jumped up on her desk and kicked that big window out and looked down, and it was a long, long way. I thought there might be some power lines or cable telephone or something. There was nothing. So there was a car on the sidewalk, and I bailed out and jumped on top of that car. Wow. And it just exploded. The, the, the roof went to the bottom and tore the seats down and steering wheel down, and the uh, windshield popped over three cars. And I got out of that thing. I looked like Donald Duck running down the road. I, I half knocked out, handcuffed, and I got away. I got several blocks before the police caught me, run up behind me and knocked me down in the, with a shotgun and, and took me back to the jailhouse. Good grief. <laughs> so... So anyhow, it was in the Elf's back the door newspaper, Spider-Man Escapes. It showed all about me jumping out the window there. How long did you have to stay there in the prison system there in Spain? A year and a 
then I got double extradition. I had to go first to the uh, to uh, to uh, Germany, and then from there to the United States. So they extradited me out to Germany and uh, left me at airport overnight. And since I, I have been known to get out of handcuffs and certainly get them in front of me, they put one hand over my back of my head and the other one up my back and left my hands handcuffed like that for 17 hours. I was wow. paralyzed in a little old tomb in the in the airport out there until the German come the next day with a military plane picked me up. I was absolutely an excruciating pain to have your arms handcuffed that way. Yes. Uh, so they took me up to Germany and put me in a maximum security prison there in Lübeck, Germany. And uh, I was I got an eight year sentence, and after one year I escaped from that prison. And uh, that's that's a good story in my book. It really is. I jumped on top of a gun gun tower and right down and over the wall and got away. Roger, I, I won't make that short, but it's too long. This is amazing. <laughs> so they caught, they caught me in the United States, and they made me do 11 years for a parole violation, the longest in the world history, certainly United States history. Anybody would do a parole violation for 11 years, and it's only for what I did overseas. They give me two years for the escape from Germany and two years for the escape in Spain. Then I cut a hole in the Metropolitan Detention Center while I was locked up in Los Angeles, and I got caught trying to get out of that building. So I got another two years for that. So <laughs> I believe I got, yeah, I got six years for attempting escapes and attempting escapes and, and five years for the hashish in Germany and six months for leaving the jurisdiction. So they made me do 11 years in Lompoc Maximum Security Prison. And when I was there, there was an average of 12 people killed, murdered every year. I tell them, guards getting murdered right in front of me knives sticking through them I saw it and uh, oh yeah that uh, it was a uh, it was a bad place Lompoc Penitentiary was God have mercy we're live with Roger Reeves uh, he lived to tell the tell um, he's been on one wild ride after the next folks who take a miniseries really to tell the whole story we're only hitting major parts here I want you all to get the book tonight We'll tell you how and again in a minute. Roger, you're in Lompoc. You served a long time there. You get out. What's next that happens? They, uh, all my paperwork are, is uh, stamped, use maximum restraints, handcuffed double on each, each one of the pages of my stuff. They took me to the Los Angeles airport, and uh, six U.S. Marshals, two in front, one on each side, and two behind with shotguns, chained me up with double handcuffs, double leg irons. I was loaded down with so much chains I rattled, and they walked me down the sidewalk, threatened just to be spectacle in front of everybody. I just look at all of them and say, it's just an illusion, lady. It's just an illusion. Shut up, Reed. <laughs> so I got to the airport in, uh, in uh, uh, Lufthansa, and the Germans took all that stuff off of me in one little pair of handcuffs. Went on the back of the airport with two, two little, two guys, and uh, flew me back to Germany. And uh, I like to tell this: I, when I got to, got to the airport, or got to the prison back in, uh, I'd been gone now eleven years. And uh, the man at the bottom of it, they had a big box and called Mister Big, and he still had my tea and coffee and everything saved in the box and all my photographs. But when I w- left that prison, I had a little. Uh, tape recorder and I had a Hank Snow song on it and I left it playing over and over and it's 
Big eight wheel a rolling down the track. Your true loving daddy ain't a coming back. He's a moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy patted me on the patted me on the cheek and he said, Big eight wheel <laughs> So we had a good laugh. Roger, when That's you were in happened. there serving time, did you ever have any craving for Waffle House? Not a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted I wanted I wanted my wife's food. I could just think about oh when I sat down oh what I missed my goodness. Oh, yeah. But I would like to tell you I went down to New York uh, to Australia and I got a life sentence for taking. I entered Australia with four hundred million dollars worth of cocaine. And I got caught. I got a life sentence with a minimum of eighteen years. But after a few years, they oh not even after two years I got out of a out of the shoe, and they put me in a thing called self care, and you can cook for yourself. And Australia is a, gives him hard sentences, and it's, it's it's a prison, but they treat you humane there. It's just wonderful how you treat you. you just can't believe you. Everything is just same as here. The laws and the, what you have to do, but they give you each person sixty dollars, and they put you in an apartment with six other men, and you got your own room, a shower in your room, and you they give you three hundred sixty dollars a week to cook with, and you can wow. order that. They have the, their funds, and they got food from the grocery store well for 360 dollars a week if you're careful and, and don't buy pre-prepared stuff you can eat really well down there oh, so wow. i cook for 16 years in australia and you could cook just about anything you wanted i mean you could amazing. i learned to be a cook that is amazing it was quite a shock to come back yes roger how did you survive so long behind bars away from family what is the secret to your longevity because most would have died um, I would have given up hope myself how did you survive well one thing is good to be a Christian I can just tell you that to believe that you're going to have a, a, a this world is not my home I'm just a passer through and uh, the saddest part was to leave my wife and children so long that was just terrible to me but I got to talk to them 20 minutes a day from Australia for the last 19 years I got I got a phone call every day and once a week I had a 30 minute Skype and my wife and I wrote back letters back and forth we have I guess certainly more than a thousand letters that we wrote and she supported me through all that and I just say the support of and the love of one person just one that'll lift you out of your darkest despair if you know somebody's loving you and thinking of you rooting for you and doing everything she can to help you get home then that 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 really helps too. And the other thing I did is I ran, and I said, uh, "Like it, <laughs> that running will help you suffer fools." And then I like to play. Uh, I like to play chess. So just about every day of my life, I played one or two games of chess. All those years in prison, and uh, that's hard to do when you're outside to find somebody that uh, would like to sit down and play you a game of chess. So there was many tales to tell, and I wrote letters, and I wrote a book, and I wrote stories. Uh, so I kept myself busy and uh, now, exercising and that sort of, yes. In prison, tell me about how you came to to know Jesus Christ. Were you raised uh, in the church as a young boy in Georgia? Uh, did you have a grandmother who was praying for you? How did you find Jesus? Well, I was, I, I, I was born into it, really and truly. I remember just in my little short pants and my shoes laying on the laying on the church pew and I called it protracted and beating and the preacher was preaching and, and uh, I, you know 
go to sleep with the preacher preaching and those revival meetings, go to church. I went to Sunday school, I guess, five years, got to Penn, Methodist Church there in South Georgia. My grandma, I slept in the bed with her till I was 14 years old. She died. And she'd get on our knees and uh, we'd, she'd pray around the world. She'd pray for the boys on the frozen battlefields of Korea. And, uh, yeah, I knew the Lord and uh, learned to pray at, a lot, at an early age. And uh, I've had some some most extraordinary uh, experiences with the Lord in my life. I'd like to just tell you one of them, real short one. I was a boy. I thought we was we were poor. And we my mother hoed and we hoed and dug and whatever with cotton, tobacco, whatever we was hoeing. And uh, about eleven thirty, we'd come in. It'd be hot. Sometimes you'd have to make a whole hoe hoe that sand out of the way before you could put your foot down. It'd be so hot. And uh, she'd cook up a meal, and put the fire in the stove, and after dinner, everybody knocked off for a few hours. It was so hot, and we'd go back over there maybe at three o'clock. Well, I'd get my little pole and run down to the creek. I'd go out to the road and go down the hill and cross a bridge. And I'd catch a string of fish sometime. My mother just bragging me, Roger can bring home the food, you know, and she'd cook them up for supper, and I would just browse myself with a little, little pan fish. One day I went across the bridge, got, dug my worms, and just got there, and the, the highway had settled a little bit, and the bridge was a little higher than the highway, and every time a car would come, come by, a truck, it boom, boom, and I'd fish in under that bridge. Well, I just threw my hook out there in my line, and I got scared. I looked around me like a big cottonmouth mocker was going to bite me, a rattlesnake or something. And I must have been 10, 11 years old. I wasn't, I wasn't no baby. I was certainly big enough to go down to the creek by myself. And I couldn't see anything. And the highway had uh, mowed the grass pretty low, and it was sunny day hot. And I sat there, and the longer I sat there, the more afraid I got. And I got so I couldn't stand it anymore. And I, I threw the worms in the water, pulled my line out, quickly wrapped it around the pole, run across the foot log, went up on that bridge, and steadied back towards home, just from fear. Now, that was most unusual. Never before or after in my life of everything like that. And coming down the hill was an old flatbed truck from back in the 50s, and it had been a semi, and the front was... Uh, cut down the cab was off of it and there was three black men in the front they had the old flat thing and they were laughing and their teeth were shining and they was coming down that hill and on the back of it was a sawmill motor that probably weighed two tons and before that behind that was four black men young ones just young fellas and they were jumping up and down on the back of that truck and the motor was right over the two wheels and it would make when they would jump the front tires would come up off the ground about a foot or 18 inches and those fellows on the front was laughing. Well, they went right past me, and they just got past me. The, those front tires hit the edge of that little lip of the bridge, and they jumped at the same time. And I turned around, and I was looking. And the front of that truck went straight up in the air, and the back of it drug down on the pavement. And the driver hit the brakes, and the one on the left caught, and the one on the right didn't. And that truck did a like a spinning top on that bridge. And it threw that uh, sawmill motor, threw that banister right down to where I had been fishing below. And I saw legs and arms and people and blood sliding down the highway. And I just ran. Now, if you don't, if you don't think an angel moved me, mister, you just don't know what it was. But it yes. happened at a very young age. 
you know, God had his hand on you, Roger. And like many of us who have grown up in the church, it doesn't mean that we, you know, we always go the right path. You know, many of us sow our wild oats. We get out there and and live live in the world. But I praise God for the Christian roots you had that I had. You know, raise up a child and the way they should go when they're older, they won't depart. You and I may have departed for a while, but you came back. And you know, what you survived, is testimony to me that God had his hand on you, protecting you. And you paid a heavy price. Uh, You ended up in prisons. When you were in prison, just a few more questions here. I want to thank Roger for going overtime with me. Roger, um, you have a lot of time to think, a lot of time to ponder. Um, Did you read the Bible while you were in jail? I read it through many times. I read it through twice in Spanish the last few years. I said, okay, just give me a little bit of different slant on it. He said, you know, he'll give you a little white stone with your name written on it. Yes. In Spanish, it said they'll give you a little white stone with your name engraved upon it. I like that. Oh, I like that, too. While in jail, you're reading the Word. Did you have any supernatural experiences? Did God speak to you? Uh, did you have any dreams while you're there? Did you run into any interesting people while you were in there? I run across to some wonderful people in that prison. In the prison, certainly I have. Uh, would you like me to tell you my biggest biggest experience, like uh, most unusual? I'd love to hear it. It'd take, it'd take a little while. Take your time. All right. When we left uh, Brazil, we landed in Amsterdam. We went to a hotel there, and uh, I was getting my hair cut. And there was a pretty little hair cut lady cutting hair, and uh, while she cut my hair, there was a, a nice-looking man came in and said, Oh, this is Floyd McLuhan. How you doing, Roger? Let me introduce my friend Floyd. So I, he shook hands with me and sat down. I said, What are you doing in Amsterdam? He said, Oh, I'm a, I'm a missionary. And I thought, A missionary in Amsterdam, man. <laughs> he said, Yes, I'm a missionary to the drug addicts and uh, the prostitutes. And I thought, Wow. Anyway. Afterwards, our haircut, we went into the coffee shop and had a cup of coffee, and I got to talking to him, and he was a, he was a man of God. I said, all right, I could feel his, uh, had a little different change about it. So I introduced him to dinner, and so my wife and I took him to the Black Sheep restaurant. And he there was so much, there was just a charisma there that I wanted even to tell him about myself, and I knew better. I was on the 10 most wanted list of the DEA all over the world. So I went on to Spain, and I got arrested in Spain. And I was after I escaped at the, the one prison and out of the courtroom. They sent me to the big prison in Alcaraz, out of Madrid. It was a modern, I mean, maximum of maximum with a moat and all kind of electronic things all over it. And uh, I was in a long cell, maybe fifteen feet deep, and I was laying there by myself. And uh, I received two books in the year and a half today. I asked my wife to send me a Schofield reference bible i don't know if you know about those oh, yes. before computers go out that all over and i wanted one so they knocked on the door in the afternoon bang 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 and you had to put your walk to the back of the room take your turn your pockets wrong side out and hold your head down and your hands forward and they opened the door two men with long truncheons and uh senior Reeves, we have a book here for you and they put it on the floor and they go back out and there was a schofield bible and uh my wife had sent it from Holland, but when I opened it up, it had 
the little emblem like a C. It's Claxton Publishing Company, Claxton, Georgia. And I said, well, how about that? Here's a Bible my wife sent from uh, from Holland to Spain from Claxton, Georgia. Now, that's interesting, right close to home. So I was proud of my Bible. And I was reading it. And a couple hours later, bang, 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 a knock on the door. And we have another book for you. Okay, my back to the room and head down pockets turned wrong side out. They lay the book on. It's a little book. And I opened it up, and it's the Father Heart of God. And I opened it up, and there was a half yellow page turned off, and it says, Roger, your family sure loves you. Ain't God great, Jerry Pope? I said, what the world Jerry sending me this little book for? The Father Heart of God that had a baby in a big father's hand. And I looked at it, and I said, what, what the world? But I opened it up, and it's the same C with Claxton Cup Publishing Company, Claxton, Georgia. It come from down in Douglas, Georgia. I said, now, I believe the Lord's in this. So I looked and turned it over, and there's a missionary from Holland on the back of it. He had written a book. And he tells about how he uh, was uh, over in Afghanistan. He helped the hippies that was looking at the old man on the mountain. He helped them get home. And then... Uh, the Lord called him, and he went back to Holland, and uh, he started uh, was instrumental in beginning of with youth with a mission. Three thousand young people go out a year to evangelize the world, and they think before the coming of Christ that they will be the evangelist. And they had made a place called Heatherville up in the north of Holland. So I read that, and I remembered it. And the years rocked on, and uh, I was so I was uh, extradited to Germany, and I escaped from that German prison. I got cut up real bad going through the bars and the wire and all and uh, I got to Holland and uh, quite, a, quite a trip uh, to getting out of Germany and uh, the lady, of the, my wife had a cousin that lived out in eastern Holland and uh, she was a Christian lady with some children and her husband and I went to their house and they took me in and so in a some days she said would you like to go to church tonight Wednesday night I said I'd like to go Mario but it'd be all in the Dutch language I wouldn't understand it said, oh no it's partly in English too you will like it come with us so I got on a plaid shirt my blue jeans to cover up the scars and I got in the car and we went a long way and I was in the front seat with Mario which our daughter's named after and uh, we went off the freeway rain I thought I didn't know how this was big we went quite a ways three car loads and we got on a little dirt road of gravel and went over a little wooden bridge and I looked out there and there was heather everywhere and pine trees and I said, Mario, is this place called Heatherville? And her mouth, her hand came to her mouth and her foot came off the accelerator and she said, what are you talking about? You've never been to Holland before. This place don't even hardly have a name. How do you know where we are? And I joked, I said, oh, I'm a big friend of Floyd McLuhan. You know him? Uh, yes, I know him. He's a good. Oh, he's a famous man in Holland. And I said, really? She said, oh, yes. And so I told her, she said, the Lord is in this, Roger. So uh, I may cry when I tell this story. So we went in. I'll get myself together here in a minute. And uh, sit on the back seat. They just pull out chairs. There's a big, big building out there in the woods. And I guess there's three or 400 people in there. And uh, 
the old rugged cross was on went up and they sung it in one verse in Dutch and then boy it was really ringing out and then Miguel at the piano and then the next verse would be in English and after a little while I, I felt the spirit of worship come over me and I was happy to be in there and then the gay, gal that was playing the piano she got up she said now is the time for prophecy if anybody's in here that has a, has a prophecy from the Holy Spirit let them, let them share it with us oh and let me back up while I was reading in the German prison and the other prisons, when I come to the third chapter of the book of John, and Nicodemus goes to the Lord at night, and he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to gain eternal life? And he calls him. So then Jesus tells him, you must be born again. And you know the story, how the wind blows, and you can't see the Spirit, but it comes. And I just always wondered, if I was to die tonight, am I born again? Would I Would I go to heaven? I just didn't know. I'm like, goodness gracious, I'm still, don't do everything I want to do. But, uh, so, back to the, back now, to the Holland in, in the big place. And it got really quiet. You could, I could hear my, feel my heart beating. And I thought, well, somebody better say something. You know how you'd think of something along like that. I wasn't very much in any conviction. And across the, way across the building, a large woman got up, gun on her head, a Bible flapped across her hand, and then she read in Dutch, and the Lord, you sock the Nicodemus, you must be born again, and the wind blow it, blah, 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 blah. I understood wow. every word perfectly still, clear. Clear. It came to me, and it felt like at that time that a chain binder went around my chest, and I couldn't breathe. I couldn't even catch my breath. My chest was so tight. I felt something like go, like my goozled flesh turn inside of me. <clears throat> that was so hard for me. And she sat down. And I was so under conviction, I could hardly breathe. And I knew she had wrote that that was, was for me. And God it got quiet speaking. again for a minute or so. And then behind me, a chair slid out. And an old man with loose teeth, he's a Dutchman, but he spoke in English. And he was breathing almost down my collar. He said, there's a man in here tonight that's in a deep black pit. Wow. wow. And I'll be able to talk in a minute. We're the Holy with Roger Reeves. <clears throat> Roger, the Holy Spirit yeah. was speaking directly to you and you were in the valley of decision. The enemy did not want to let go of you, but the Holy Spirit was beckoning you. What happened next? And, it, and the old man breathed down my back, and he said, there's a man and you're in a deep black pit. And the Holy Spirit has a message for you, sir. He wants to tell you that you are born again, that you're further along with the, where you walk with the Lord than wow. you ever realize. And he tells me to tell you that the Spirit that lives in you is much stronger than the spirit that lives in the world. Will you stand up, sir, so we can pray for you? Of course, I stood up. Brother, I feel like crying. I can't tell that without crying. God loves you, loves us all so much. Folks, doesn't matter what we've done, what we've been through. There's not anything too hard for God to forgive or to fix. 
And brother, you had been running from the Lord for a long time. And I talk to him every day. Though. You had a divine encounter. Sure. Of course. He got you. He saved you. And he's kept you alive. He's brought you back to the family. When uh, you had that encounter there in Holland, what happened next in your life? Did you feel any burden lift off of you? Yes, I suppose so. <clears throat> I suppose so. I was still under so much stress of, of, of being wanted ten most wanted women both in the United States and in, in oh, Europe. Yes. My, yes. my picture was post office. Yeah. I went on back I came on back to the United States and, and I got caught. That's when I did the eleven years for the parole violation. You know, and then uh, I was in that, and and it was it was something I uh, I lived through the the long park experience. You know what? You've been through living hell, and uh, even through all that, the Lord was with you, my brother. I believe Absolutely. it was because of a grandmother who prayed for you, and um, prayer works, folks. Roger, you spent a total of how many years in prison? Almost thirty years. 33. 33. And how long have you been a free man? Three months right now. God have mercy. You know, we were praying for you. I only discovered your story in the last year. And I looked in to see where you were at. And I think I'd made contact with Sister Reeves. And she said, um, you know, we're hoping to have Roger with us soon. And when I got the report... About two months ago, I said, praise God. Roger's free. We'll get an opportunity at some point to have him on the show. And, folks, if you're just joining us, we're live with Roger Reeves. You've got to get the book. This interview can't do justice to the whole story, which you're going to find in his book, Smuggler, Roger Reeves, a memoir. Everybody out there needs to get this book. It's on Amazon right now. Roger, um, God help you. You made it through. You gave your life to Christ. You're born again. What is next for Roger Reeves? Uh, are you glad to be home, by the way? <laughs> oh, words can't, words. Wait, I'd say when I got here, it's a lovely, lovely place. I look out on the mountains and through the trees, we hardly see anybody. And, and I just told people, I said, you know, not many people get a chance to feel like they went to heaven while they're still on earth. But it feels like that come home to a lovely wife that's waited on me all those years. Been married 56 years, and I've been in prison 33 of them, more than half. I can't believe it. Never even dreamed, dreamed that I'd go to prison. I never even dreamed that I'd break the law. I, I really never did. Just like It's just like something happens. You know, time flies. And Yes. But I praise God that um, time didn't run out on you, didn't run out on me, and you're a free man. I'm rejoicing with you. Do you have any children? I, yes, I do. I certainly do. I have four children. I have two boys and two girls. And grandchildren, too? Oh, yeah, and great-grandchildren. Congratulations to you. Roger, um, <laughs> what's next for you? What would you like to do at this point? I don't hardly know. We've got this virus out here. I can't travel much. I want to get off parole and, and may, maybe see a little bit of the United States. Uh, 
maybe maybe my wife and I uh, travel. I, I got a farm back in Georgia. I'd like to go back and see that and uh, see my folks and go to the graveyard. All the folks, my mother and folks, all died while I was gone. I'd like to just go back to the graveyard, just well, clean it off like we used to do, and uh, walk walk the walk through some of those dirt roads and go fishing again. Well, you're going to get to do that and more. Do you think you'll ever fly again? Would you like to fly? Yeah, I'm, I, I, yeah, I'd, I'd be nothing to fly. It's like if a bicycle, I might be wobbly for the first minute, but I'll be all right after that. Yes, I'm. In fact, a friend of mine came by the other day and said, "I'm going to take you up my jet." And I said, "Well, I can only go in a small district here, so don't get, don't get out of it." <laughs> and we didn't even cover this. We we'll have to do it another time. But um, your story of Alaska, and uh, is it true that you even flew over Antarctica or the Arctic Circle one point? No, we went up to the Arctic Ocean. Oh, the Arctic so we Ocean. Go to okay. Yeah, we went up to the top of it. A new big. My wife's brother lives up there, so I'm we went right, to, up, right um, up to the top of Canada. Okay. I, at some point, I'm going to introduce you to a good friend of mine. His name is uh, Dwayne King. He was uh, a bush pilot in Alaska, and uh, now he he's in his he's in his uh, late seventies, early eighties. But he runs a uh, Last Frontier Ranch, and they train uh, missionary pilots. And send them around the world into All Russia. Right. Um, folks, what an awesome opportunity to be here tonight with Roger. I want to thank you, Roger, for going nearly three hours. Um, I was merciful on you. We could have went five. <laughs> um, I've got to ask you a question. I know things have changed uh, since you've seen freedom. What's the biggest thing that has changed to you that you see that well, was... I went to a really nice restaurant here. It was her birthday on the 28th, and we went in, and we uh, I went to the bathroom, and they didn't have one. It was unisex. It had a man and a pictures, and so I went to the urinal, and there was a woman on both sides of me. That was the biggest thing. You know what? I, I'm never going to get used to that. That's nuts, and we can thank Obama for that one. <laughs> Good grief. That's crazy. Somebody said, what happened? I said, I couldn't see. Well, I'm going to tell you if this quarantine keeps up for much longer, I'm going to be I'm going to be angry too. I mean, come on, uh, this is nuts. This is uh, this is absolutely insane. You want to be politically correct? My goodness gracious, this has gone crazy. Roger, we've never oh. had a situation in the world where they put people on quarantine for the blasted flu, and uh, I'm not saying it's not real. But we never did that for any other thing that's ever hit this world. Definitely, it's political. And you know what? I'm going to tell you straight up, one Christian to another, I think we're living in the last days. We may be ready to see the mark of the beast soon. This may be a part of putting us all under an antichrist globalist government at some point. What do you think? Well, we know good well we're in the last days. No doubt about that. Yes, sir. Now, and, and I just see... <laughs> You can't can't get coins. You can only get so many of them. This and other shortage of money. That's right. Uh, oh, just 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 signs, just signs. I, I have visions. I don't care if anybody believes in it or not. But I've had six or seven visions. What do you see? And uh, I, I saw one of my the first vision I ever had was a, a Christ coming back to Earth. It was, it was just beautiful beyond description. And that was many many years ago. And, but most of my visions have all come true. They usually come true within two or three weeks or a few days. Crystal you know, Roger, clear. Um, 
truly, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Now, I know there's a lot of people, whether it be Hollywood or sports, it's all about the money. Um, you know, making the millions, uh, having the cars, the houses, the women, everything like that. But uh, truly, like one guy said, you can't take a um, U-Haul behind your hearse. And um, what do you say to people tuning in there tonight um, that do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Well, they're just missing out on a on a bountiful gift. It's just a gift, and it's it's a present, and uh, yes, it just it helps you to enjoy your life and love love your fellow man a whole lot more. It just uh, does something to you. It's it's magic. In other words, we could have everything, but we can die and not know Jesus. What what did it profit us? And so, you know, folks, time is running out for us all. And the only thing that's going to matter when the Spirit leaves the body is is our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, you've heard tonight some of the testimony of a man who had first-hand experience uh, with some of the, uh, the figures that you hear about on movies and documentaries. He knew them. Some idolize these people. And, you know, in this line of business, you make a lot of money. But also, Roger, uh, what would you have to say to some of the younger crowd out there who, you know, they're all about the money. They want to get paid. Maybe they're thinking about um, leading a life of crime. Is it worth it? Well, you see, the the dollar is, is the king of this world. It's the idol. Now, it's just a worship that people do. And I, I've, I've been very much guilty of it. But I've had millions and millions and millions of dollars and everything you can imagine. And it doesn't make you happy. I can promise you that. I guarantee you. It makes life a little more fun. You go to a nicer restaurant, nice, better, better clothes, but all that sort of stuff. It just, and I tell you, the price is just not worth it. Get you an education. Absolutely. And get you a job. It's a steady, quiet, plotting one winning this long, lifelong race. I didn't ask you this question. Probably my last question I'll ask tonight uh, because I know we're getting late on time. But when you were in jail, uh, did you learn about the death of Pablo Escobar while you were in there? He died a horrible death, I heard. I, I really think he shot himself. You look at the, the gunshot wound on his head. He knew they was going to kill him. They was all over him up on that roof. And his yes. brother said he shot him. He showed a little white burn around. He put the gun up to his head and blew his brains out. You know? Yeah. Uh, here, he was the, an evil person. He killed that the, many people, blew up an airliner. I'm sorry. I repent that I ever shook his hand or ever met him. Well, you had That's no idea that he would do that. And money, Pardon? you had no idea no, that that would no be idea. the way he'd go out. No. Um, no. But nonetheless, you know, the guy made billions and, and he died. He didn't take it with him. Folks, uh, smartest thing any of us can do while we still have time is make a decision give our lives to Jesus um, you can't take anything else with you folks and we're all running out of time um, I want to ask you one more trivia question, bonus question here there was recently a documentary series called um, 
hunting Pablo Escobar's millions. And there's a film crew that was given permission by the Colombian government to fly around for a period of about three months and try to find any of Pablo's money. Um, they say he buried millions, and there's probably still millions buried in barrels all over Colombia. What's your take on that? I'm sure he lost some money. Let me just tell you, I mean, I was I was small compared to what he was. But back in 1982, when I had uh, the two different pilots bringing in the, the stuff, this is what was they bringing in? Uh, about $2.5 million a piece, about $5 million a week that was coming into me. And I would meet the... Uh, Meet uh, the girl Marta. The, uh, uh, Grisaldo killed her and her little boy, groated him and put him in a canal. But she was the one, the, uh, Marta Ochoa, lovely, lovely lady. She'd meet me at the Rusty Pelican on Wednesday night and she'd go over the figures. And, and I says, So one night, I'm just, this is telling about losing money. I said, You owe me seven and a half million dollars. No, Roger, we owe you seven million dollars. I said, You do not. I got to know how many loads we did, did that, and we we sat there and argued about that in a friendly sort of way, but uh, about a half million dollars. And she said, oh, no, no. Remember, actually brought you, he was driving that yellow Cadillac, and he brought you a half a million dollars last Friday night over at the Holiday Inn. Oh, that's right, that's right. Okay, sorry, I forgot that, Martha. So <laughs> if me on my scale could I forget somebody giving me a half a million dollars, what did Pablo Escobar do in... 10, 20 times that amount. Forget. No question about it. Um, I spoke too soon. There is one more question I need to ask you. There is a story <laughs> of another uh, pilot, and I don't know if his story is true or not, but he went by the name of Mickey Monday, and he, I guess, just smuggled cash for Pablo. Um, he claims that he would bring in money for Pablo, and what he would do is he would spray the cash with uh, liquid cocaine so that uh, all the cash in America would all have a little bit of cocaine on it. Any truth to that story? I have no idea. No idea about that. I would doubt it. But anyhow, people tell big stories. I just don't know. One more thing. Did you ever run into a a, a character named Popeye, who was supposed to be uh, the enforcer for Pablo? He's dead now, but uh, does that name ring a bell, Popeye? No, I didn't know any of those people. I, I was being the pilot. I kept my I kept a pretty low profile, the lowest I could. Okay, I I pushed I, I Roger in Columbia to the time limit tonight with my bonus questions. We're going to have to do another show, folks. Did you enjoy tonight? All right. What a treat to have Roger Reeves here. Now, Roger, again, um, they can get the book. Uh, and learn much more than we had time for tonight. Where does a person go to order your book? How do they do that? Oh, uh, they just, uh, I guess you just uh, Google uh, a- Amazon uh, a books and you get Smuggler Roger Reeves. And it, it's uh, 530 pages, so there's quite a bit of evidence and photographs there. Folks, sink your you teeth into that. You're going to enjoy the book, get a copy. Uh, are you planning any more books, Roger? Yes, I I was uh, I I, I kind of outlined a book and had it in my property with uh, um, uh, the, the Australian Airlines and somebody stole that box box with my goodies in it when I come over here they're supposed to ship it and I had an outline of one called Use Maximum Restraints 
and it was telling of uh, just about prison experiences that I'd had in the 33 years in prison. So I, I was kind of I'm sorry that I lost that, but I, I can rewrite it, but it, it takes a long time to do stuff like that. Well, that'd be great. And do I understand also your wife is uh, working on a book? Yes. She's going to call it The Waiting. <laughs> Uh, she's she's interested. And she's she she came over with uh, from Holland after the war. She was born in the war. And they was all displaced and bummed out, and come across and lived in Canada. And I met her up there. We've well, been married. I met her at fifty eight years ago. Congratulations to you. Welcome back home, Roger. Uh, extend an invitation to Miss Reeves when she's ready. We'd love to have her on. And uh, my friend, I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on today. Could we have you back on again? I'd be. I'd be honored to. <laughs> My friend, thank you. Um, folks, um, Roger was only supposed to do an hour show, but I took him for three hours. What a sport you are. Roger, thank you so much for coming on tonight. God richly bless you. And, folks, I give this book a Mega Man five stars. Get the book. Roger, thank you so much. Uh, we'll be talking to you again soon, my friend. All right. Call me anytime, Shannon. Thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye, Roger. Have a great day.